Mr. Hahn? You fought well yesterday. Your style is unorthodox, but effective. It is not the art, but the combat that you enjoy. The winning. We are all ready to win, just as we are born knowing only life. It is defeat that you must learn to prepare for. I don't waste my time with it. When it comes, I won't even notice. Oh, how so? I'll be too busy looking good. What were you looking for when you attacked my guards? Wasn't me. You were the only man outside the palace. I was outside, but I wasn't the only one. You will tell me who else. Mr. Han, suddenly I'd like to leave your island. It is not possible. Bullshit, Mr. Handman. Man, you come right out of a comic book. Traveling to another radio show. A broadcast not only of sight and sound, but of mind, mind. A journey into the wondrous land whose boundaries are that of the imagination. imagination. That's the on-air sign up ahead. Your next stop, Afro Nerd Radio. With your guides, Dee Bird, Captain Kirk, and on Grindhouse Saturdays, the uncanny Daryl D. And introducing West Coast correspondent, Miss Claire Linnae. Mind expansion engaged. One more week, folks, one more week, and we will be in the Christmas spirit more forthrightly, I hope. If you haven't guessed it, folks, this is the Grindhouse edition of Afro Nerd featuring Captain Kirk and, of course, the young Kenny Darrowby and our lovely co-discussant, our left coast correspondent, Claire Linnae. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great show for you, as always. We're, we're expecting Mr. John Jennings, John Ira Jennings, from... Uh, what can I say, from the Black Comic Book Festival, forthcoming. And, of course, we have the mighty Joseph Illich in full effect from Lion Ford, from Birch Entertainment, from DC Comics, from Milestone Media. He is a man of all things. So, definitely a polymath, uh, and so is Mr. Jennings, actually. Both these gentlemen I would consider polymaths. Anyway, 
folks, this is a nerd show, so I'm going to use $100 words if you don't mind. <laughs> We're going to go to an urban alternative groove, but from a black rock and roll, soulful, urban alternative perspective. Uh, classic grooves, folks. The call-in number, 646-915-9620. Again, 646-915-9620. Classics. This is Curtis Blow, Christmas rapping. Give you about two minutes. We'll be right back. Let's groove. Hit it. About things you wrote for both eyes alive. But this ain't 1823, ain't even 1970. Now I'm the guy named Curtis Blow. the phaser folks regretfully once again talk about classic hip-hop at its best 1980 live from top of the pops that was curtis blow christmas rapping wow can you imagine folks making music like that again in the 21st century i don't think so anyway folks this is the grind house a special grind house we have a fully packed house i just got word that our left coast correspondent clay lanay she'll be coming in a little bit later uh, regretfully, she did not see Rogue One, <laughs> but we all we all did, so we will have to be, uh, you know, spoiler, spoiler concerned when she comes on. Anyway, folks, let's just get into this. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we have a, we have some great guests. Uh, we have Mr. Joseph Illage from Verge Entertainment, Lion Forge, 
Milestone, as far as his biography, Milestone Media, DC Comics. I mean, this man has done it all. And also, we have another gentleman that is equally proficient, Mr. John Ira Jennings, um, professor at University of Buffalo, uh, illustrator, and also uh, is spearheading the fifth annual Black Comic Book Festival, courtesy of the Schomburg Center, Schomburg Center pardon me, in Harlem, USA. So, Bring in my discussants, and then we'll bring in our guests. First up, we have Captain James T. Kirk of the SS Afro Nerd. <laughs> Cap, you're needed on Rigel for a game. Let's just get into it. Let's do it, ladies and gentlemen. Let's begin. Another compatriot in our blurred mission, you know who he is. He is the uncanny Daryl B. Daryl, you're needed once again. Let's get to it. I believe in the Force, and the Force believes in Donnie Yen. Without sight, he's a bad mofo, isn't he? Damn straight. I I don't want to give too much away. I don't want to give too much away. All right. (laughs) All right. Uh, let me see if I have my, my sound effects here, folks. Theater of the mind, theater of the mind. Now, who could that be? Mr. Illich. Hey, you? good evening. How's everyone doing? How are you doing, Pretty Mr. Good, I? Welcome to Afronaut Radio. Thank you very much. Glad to be here with you. Thank you, thank you. I think we have another person you should be familiar with, Mr. Illich. Uh, let me get my sound effects up again. I know this is it's a nerd show. <laughs> this, is what, this is what we do. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, there he is. Mr. Jennings. Hello. How are you there doing? There he is. is that What's you? going on? Is that you? <laughs> Yeah, it's me. How you doing? <laughs> Pretty good, man. Johnny, what's, what's Joe? going on, man? Ready? Mr. Oh, Jennings, please. <laughs> yeah, this is the man that deserves the applause. Congratulations with Kindred coming out. Oh, yes. thanks, man. Appreciate that. Very excited. You're welcome. Hopefully yeah, no people doubt. will love it, you know? Yep, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so I was just and taking a, our... a break from, from packing. <laughs> crazy, I understand it. I know your time is precious, sir, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to not to make this into a dental exam, but we did want to hear from you. Um, we're very excited about the Black Convo Festival, and, of course, we're excited to have Mr. Illich in full effect as well. Um, let's, go to, let's go to John quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I know you're in the middle of moving, and there's a lot of things going on. Tell us about the Black Comic Festival this time around. Uh, from my understanding, it's going to be two days in sh- at the Schomburg this time. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. We um we were really excited about last year. There was a lot of response. Um, over seven thousand uh, visitors came through the doors uh, to the wow. fourth annual uh, Black Comic Book Festival. This year, we thought it would be prudent to you know spread over spread things over a couple of days. Uh, we're going to have some really great. Um, Presentations uh, and um, and some w- really wonderful vendors. We have like some extremely talented uh, vendors as usual over the two days. Um, it was kind of daunting just because of the 
st- I don't know if you've been by the Schomburg recently, but there are a lot of sh- re- renovations still going on. So we had to shift a lot I heard of things around. Yeah, so so the the secondary vending space will be in the American Negro Theater this year, and um, and we actually and they're also going to have like the Black Power show up right now too because it's the 50th anniversary of Black Power being uttered in my home state of Mississippi actually too. So that's uh, that's going to be part of what's going on there. But yeah, it should be really amazing. And we're doing like some uh, special presentations to some legends, uh, to some comics legends, and some really insightful panels, and just a ton of like you know. Uh, Afrofuturist work and, and black comics work just across the board. So it's, it's going to be exciting. So, so what are your thoughts about how, how, how this has really expanded? I mean, I, I've been going, I think I missed the first year, but I've been going every, ever since then, two, three, four, mm-hmm. and hopefully next month. So uh, it seems like this thing has just been growing exponentially along with, with, with traditional mainstream nerdom. But, I, you know, I can see for myself that this thing is becoming really a monster. I mean, if it's 7,000 last year, we might see 10 or 12 this year, don't you? I mean, it's, it's conceivable or even more it, than that. It's conceivable. It is conceivable. I mean, because usually what happens is people, if they have a good time, they'll, they'll bring other people. And, you know, we, we love having it at the Schomburg just because of what the Schomburg means to black culture and black history in, in our country. And um, the fact that I was, most of the people that come – uh, are not only just people who are really interested in like black comics, but also families and mothers bring their, their children and teachers who are looking for ways to engage um, diverse audiences. So yeah, I think it has been uh, an explosion of interest in, in, in the black subject in comics. And um, you can see it not, you know, like I said, just in the mainstream too, but also in you know independent comics, you know, like for instance, like the middle tier independent comics, but also, the comics and, and uh, stories have been generated by self-publishers. What's really wonderful about the the Schomburg is like you know everyone there is a publisher. You know everyone's publishing their own work and and using you know digital technology and, and social media to push um, the work out. So I don't know. I, I think yeah. I, I think it's a really interesting time. I think I think that um, finally that we actually have the means of production to actually put out the work and it's showing. I think in the quality of the work and also in the the fervent nature of the fandom, <laughs> you know, it's the time of, it's definitely the time of the blurred for real. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. So we're everywhere. And it seems like uh, other conventions have taken your, your baton because there's a blurred mm-hmm. con coming uh, in DC. I think there's some other kind of in DC. convention. That's yeah, so true. That, I've heard about, actually I saw one of the brothers at, at New York comic con, um, yeah, and of course, you know, we do one on the, up, on the opposite coast too. You know, because I jump on a plane That's and I true. fly Saturday out to the BCAF, which last year we had four thousand people, and uh, this year I'm hoping it'll, it'll be even larger. But uh, yeah, we and we have like a really serious roster of folk there too, including uh, Brian Michael Bendis is actually going to be one of our guests uh, guests out there too. On the West Coast. On the West Coast, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. That's that's pretty. That's pretty big. I mean, it's real big. Well, you know, you have someone who's an industry leader, not notwithstanding, of course, uh, your co our co panelists here, uh, and also right. our friend David Walker. But um, mm-hmm. you know, that's you, you know, there's that crossover appeal that all of a sudden, when you, you know what I'm about to say, uh, when things are hot with black folks, all of a sudden everybody starts to kind of say, "Oh, wow, black people are into comic books." So I'm, I'm very appreciative yeah. to hear that. Um, 
Yeah. What are your thoughts about about the actual amount of content? Like again, I went the second year, and I thought, listen, I was I was in heaven, but I thought that the content just wasn't there necessarily because you were just still within mm-hmm. its infancy. But now, there is an overflow of black and brown content. So, what are your thoughts about just the fact that there's a lot there's a lot going on in just a, in a, just a few years, exponentially more. Yeah, I think it's funny that you mentioned um, the statement that you made about, like, oh, you know, black people are in the comics. You know, it reminds me of, of the black exploitation era a little bit, <laughs> you know, whereas, like, you know, to a certain degree, uh, black exploitation film uh, sort of kind of underwrote, you know, Hollywood, which was kind of ailing at the time. And, of course, a lot of the characters that we know and love were spawned out of that interest, uh, like, you know, characters like Luke, uh, Luke Cage and, you know, the Falcon and characters like that. And so, what ends up happening, of course, you know, Hollywood uh, took that baton and kind of ran with it. And before you know it, you know, we, we had all these black exploitation films that were kind of spun off from some of the original films. And I see kind of a correlation between that and what's going on with the, uh, what is kind of like uh, this black uh, comics, uh, you know, culture. I, I look at it as kind of a spinoff of what's been going on, which is Afrofuturism and, and as a whole. I mean, there's been a resurgence of interest in, in black speculative culture, whether it's comics, uh, sci-fi, horror, you know, stories around the supernatural, steampunk, that kind of stuff. And I think all of it is part of a uh, space of resistance to like this kind of like systemic erasure that has been happening, you know. And so that's why I think a lot of this this is coming from is like, you know, now that we have access to uh, the tools, the tools are a lot more u- ubiquitous. I mean, there's so many, you can, you can learn how to, how to use Photoshop on, on YouTube. I mean, basically the internet and uh, access, I think has changed how we start making things and it's the materiality and, and, the, and the access to that materiality through, through the digital that actually, um, I think has kind of propelled, has kind of propelled a lot of the, the interest in the space. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And, and I think it's probably going to be the making space for a while too, I think. I got to give you a personal thank you. You know, um, uh, I was on a panel along with, again, Mr. Illich, and I had loads of fun uh, representing podcasting, which is another, I guess, kind of a a media element to to the blurred dissemination. So uh, I want to thank you personally for doing that. Um, Daryl, I'm sure you have uh, some questions questions for for Mr. Jennings. I know his time is precious. I don't want, you know. Well, Mr. Jennings, once thank you for tolerating our craziness. The three out of oh, no, four no years. Oh stop it! I appreciate it. No. <laughs> All right. So, so um, any chances that that we could get some news outlets here interested this time? I know last year New York One came in late to it. Yeah. But I kind of want you know, hey, Eyewitness News, CBS, NBC, you know. Spare a couple of reporters down this way for a second. Time, time yeah, to I get mean, this I, out to the masses. I don't know no, how I it is out true. in San Francisco, but here I kind of want more media coverage. Yeah, we we, we get a little bit more uh, just because of the, the the size of San Francisco, and I think the audience is a bit different. But this is something that I've lamented a lot as well. You know, it's I mean I've actually been interviewed by. You know CBS. I've been inter- interviewed by the BBC. I've been interviewed by I think NBC once. And a lot of times they're still going after that that mainstream uh, nugget, so to speak. And so actually one time I actually talked to a sister from from CBS, and I told her I was like, I know sister that you cannot use any of this because I know that you're going to be 
looking for the Falcon and you're going to be looking for Luke Cage and all these other great characters, but there's an incredible, if you want to look at the diversity, uh, the diversity for real, I think that the people who are making the work, you know, and some of it is like, is really high quality work. That's where the true diversity is. You know, let's talk about blackjack. Let's talk about brother, man. Let's talk about Maddie's rocket. You know, let's talk about uh, Tuskegee airs. You know, these are like, you know, quality projects that are coming from black and brown folk and, you're right. I mean, Solar Man, Solar Man, by the way, too. <laughs> Solar Man, exactly. Thank you. Thank Solar Man. Thank and you Blue very Man much. And since we're talking about it, you know, <laughs> so so these are these are projects that are coming out of this space that I think are uh, there's a, I think there's a reason why those things are being ignored. You know, I mean, there's something about c- controlling your own uh, image that is extremely empowering, right? And um, as much as I love Luke Cage and the Falcon, I mean, these characters are still coming from a mostly white mainstream, you know, kind of perspective, even when it's being, you know, written by black writers. I mean, that's cool. You know, I mean, I, I've been loving Tony Hesse's, uh, you know, uh, Black Panther and him and, and Stell Freeze are doing an amazing job. But at the same time, I think that when I'm thinking about diverse uh, uh, work, I'm looking at the independence. And so I definitely want more coverage as well, you know. Can we get them down there? I'm not sure, <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, I definitely, I, I totally agree with you, though, and I, it's been something that's been sort of kind of a source of frustration for me. You know, when I was on the panel um, earlier this year, uh, it's amazing now we're going to go into another year, and I had thrown out, uh, there was a discussion about whether hip-hop is connected to um, comics or especially blurred, blurred culture. And I had said that I mm-hmm. thought that Afropunk, Afropunk, and Black Rock would really be where it's at. And uh, at the New York Comic Festival, shout out to uh, the Blur Girl, um, and of course, uh, um, why am I forgetting your name now? From um, uh, Jim, uh, Jimmy Broadneck. <laughs> Jimmy Broadneck, thank you. Jimmy Broadneck. Mm-hmm. They had the uh, the Blurs meet the Afropunks, and um, I think what's going to happen. The reason why I'm mentioning that is I think this is. I think what's going to happen is. The, your popularity is just going to be get, get more and more pronounced where it's unavoidable. Afropunk started out, because I look at them very similar. I guess that's why they, they matched them up for the Comic-Con. Um, mm-hmm. Afropunk started out 10 years ago with just a couple of hundred people in a basement, and then it morphed into over 100,000 people in a weekend. Right, and, so, and multiple cells all over the country, too. And, and actually over the world, too, because there's a yeah, Paris, London. London. Yeah, Paris, London, yeah. So uh, do, you, do you foresee that being kind of inevitability that we may be griping about the lack of media attention to a certain degree? But, I mean, you know, you got two, two shows in New York. You have shows in, 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 on, in the West Coast. I mean, it's kind of hard for them to deny it at some point, don't you think? At least I think so. I definitely think so, and I also think that there's a there's an extreme. I always thought there was an extreme intersection between, you know, all of um, black uh, creative and cultural production. You know, so and for instance, one of our panels is about hip hop and comics. You know, that's actually one of our panels this year. You know, it was one of our first. We have Eric Orr. I'm gonna try to get DMC and also um, Andre Leroy Davis is supposed to be on this panel. Um, as well, and just talking about visual culture and hip hop and how it connects to just the kind of uh, the really powerful visuality of comics, you know, and how that affects hip hop and, and other musical forms too. Like you're saying, I mean, I think what what it boils down to is that 
spaces like Afropunk, spaces like, you know, the Black Speculative Arts Movement, spaces uh, like the Black Comics uh, space, independent space, they all speak to black subjectivity, I think. You know, uh, if you think about how blackness in, in, in writ large in, in, in the mainstream culture is primarily still um, structured through stereotypes, you know, and, and that's, that's very problematic. But I think that when we see ourselves, that we create more of a fluid blackness, like more of a resistant blackness to that type of stereotype. Because stereotypes, again, are about fixing what you see, you know. But I think by, by engaging with, like, spaces like, you know, Afropunk and, and these other kind of, like, alternative modes of blackness, that we actually see a commonality in that liquid blackness, so to speak, that kind of, like, push back against, you know, us being uh, caged up by the stereotype. So I, I think that's what it is. It's just an alternative form of it. And we've been doing this for years. I mean, I think that's what originally what the blues was. I think that's originally what jazz was, you know. And, and, and also I see um, – this creation of like you know black uh, popular culture being very similar to the black arts movement too which was kind of like the the sister to the black power movement you know which i think is really interesting that we're going to have this black power show it's the 50th anniversary of it it's also the 50th anniversary of the black panthers it's the 50th anniversary of you know the black panther character too right so i don't know this is really interesting to me to see to see these things kind of resurge you know i went off on a tangent sorry (laughs) <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're on the right. You're on the right program for that. So that's all we do is go off on tangents. Uh, yeah, I remember. Uh, tangents? No, no, never. No, one of our is here. That's all we do. We always say it was t- tangentially connected. That's one of our favorite taglines. Um, I, I think it's it's very uh, endearing that the festival is held at the Schomburg of all places, and uh, yes. I, I would all, like you just said is I would think it's definitely analogous to. Uh, the Harlem Renaissance, maybe this is the new Harlem Renaissance with, you know, meetings at the Dark Tower. You know, it's like there was the Ivory yeah. Tower, there was the Dark Tower where po- poets would meet and that kind of thing. So, um, right. I-, I think I think we're kind of, I think we're on the right track. Joe, uh, my, my apologies, you're, you're up next, but you, do you have any, any questions? You were, a co- you were a co-discussant with me uh, earlier th- this year, so I'm pretty sure you may have some thoughts about what Mr. Jennings has brought to the table. No, I mean, look, it's all clear that what John is doing for our art and culture is expanding it in the educational and classic art arenas. It's stepping beyond the four-color page, and it's being shown where it should be in places that showcase art and culture. And mm-hmm. that is going to be part of how we're going to move forward. That's going to be part of how we change the perception of the significance of the combination of the black voice and art forms, is that we have to take it outside of the direct market. We have to take it past the bookstores, and yep. we have to take it to museums. We have to take it to schools. We have to take it to colleges. So the Schomburg Comic Book Festival is the perfect platform for something like that and hopefully the perfect example so that others will follow so that this is not just happening with the black voice, but that it's happening with the Latinx voice, that Mm -hmm. it's happening with the Asian voice, that it's happening for all communities that represent the other. 
I totally agree with that. And just as an aside, um, I'm sorry, thank you. What, I'm sorry, what are you about to say? <laughs> well, I gonna, I, well, I was going to ask you because I, I don't want to be remiss in, in not mentioning it. It was mentioned at the top of the show. Your Kendrick graphic novel that's forthcoming. Is it coming out in, in January 17, I think? or It'll be launching at the Schomburg event. Yep. Abrams will be there selling the book. Um, Excellent. So yes, January, Excellent. January 10th, yes. And so it'll be uh, – It'll be launching on both coasts simultaneously, so we're going to be selling it at the, the San Francisco uh, piece too. Um, yeah, so that's that's when it drops. So it's January 10th. Still available for you know, pre-order. And we're going to do some some uh, you know p- promotional work around it too. But yeah. And okay. that's, I saw it at Amazon. I saw it at Amazon, but where where else can it be purchased? Through your website um, or? No, 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 no. I mean, I it's. The publisher is Abrams Comic Art, so just either order it through Abrams or order it through Amazon. Those are the best spots for or Barnes and Noble. Okay. It's, how do you say it? wherever wherever fine books are sold? <laughs> yeah. Right, that's right. I mean, Abrams is a well-known, high-quality publisher, so I can't see you not being able to find it in right. major chains and independent bookstores where right. it should be. I mean that. Well, thank you very much for that. And, and the other thing is that, um, and this is something that I thought was pretty special, even though it's kind of like a low key, that uh, Ingram, which is the largest book distributor probably in the world, um, the, um, the the cover for our book was on the cover of their catalog, on their retail catalog. Nice. This is the catalog that goes out to all of the brick and mortar uh, stores across the country. So, you know, I'm I was really excited to see that. <laughs> so. I think it might be congratulations. It's great done like that too. Thank you. But um, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been it's been an extremely interesting year. Let's just say that. <laughs> so. and, and you know, oh, speaking about yeah. content, oh, speaking of, mm-hmm. speaking of content and Octavia Butler, you know, I'm mm-hmm. looking at all these Netflix deals, all these Amazon deals. Uh, Foxy Brown is going to be rebooted with Megan Good at Hulu. I mean. One would think that we would see some Octavia Butler um, adaptations on 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 screen. Is, I mean, has anyone heard anything, or is that something? Is that just a, yet another battle that we have to kind of overcome? Or hmm. I, I had seen that there was supposed to be a TV show, and I don't think it was Netflix. I think it was another net, network based off of her her novel Dawn, which I think is part of the as I recall the. The Xenogenesis uh, series, as, as I recall. Yeah, so <clears throat> there was supposedly a television show in, you know, in, in uh, production. And there have been like some plays, I think, and some other things that were kind of based off of some of her work or inspired by her work. Um, I did see that Ava DuVernay was very interested in doing a Kindred movie. And this is like around the same time that Selma was in the theaters. But, and I also know that for a fact that you know. The estate has sold the rights to Kindred, the original book, to a production house. I'm not sure which one or where, it, or, if, or if anything is coming up that so far. But yeah, I, I think it's, I think it is uh, kind of a tragedy that her work has not been explored in those spaces. And there's an excellent article uh, by Sean Taylor about that very thing. It was on, um, I want to say it was on IGN or something like that. It was a great article. I can see if I can find it for you. But it was uh, basically he was stating, like, my God, we have, like, 10,000 Jules Verne movies and not one, you know, about about uh, Tavie Butler's work at all. Because so, Wild Seed by itself would be just a wonderful, you know, made-for-TV, you know, uh, series just by itself. 
but so much question. of our work has been stolen. So, you know, stolen. Oh, excuse me. Inspired or homaged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ripped off. More like ripped <laughs> off. <clears throat> did I say that? Oh, oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> One last question, because I know you have to go back to, to packing. And, and again, I'm very, no, I wanted uh, to hang very, on. I wanted, to hear what you, I wanted to hear what you're going to say to Joe. I mean, I want to, because now I'm, I'm, I've been packing, by the way. I've been like stuffing stuff. So you go ahead. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm you are okay. a I want to hear what Joseph, I want to talk to Joseph. I want to hear what Joseph going to say. <laughs> okay, we, we, made, we made room for you a little bit because of, you know, I, because of the time constraints. But sure, we can, we can kind of mix this up. Um, also, I see that our left coast correspondent has has uh, actually stepped into full effect. Gentlemen, you know this is a nerd show. We have to do these kind of things. Mm-hmm. You can hear the music. <laughs> our own personal Wonder Woman, from the left coast, has finally arrived. <laughs> Let me break a ring. Claire, is that you? It is I. <laughs> How are you doing, girl? Um, oh, I'm holidays. doing okay. Okay. Happy holidays. Okay, listen. Happy holidays. We have, a, we have, we have a full house. You have, we have Mr. Joseph Illich in full effect, Claire, and we also have Mr. John Ira Jennings also. So um, we have a full house. Um, let, let's let's segue. You know what? Uh, let's segue a little bit to to uh, to of course to. To uh, Joe Illich, but I've seen a number of times at these festivals and conventions and everything. So uh, to you as well, thankfully, uh, very appreciative that you came came through. You've been very busy too, sir. Um, to say the least. Lion Forge, Lion Forge, and uh, Verge Entertainment and Solar Man. I mean, you know, this, you you've been really very upfront about the need for diversity. So walk me through a little bit. Um, we've had you on before, so you're practically a family member. So, tell us a little bit about, especially especially Lion Forge. I, I mean, th- this is is this supposed to be kind of like the the anti milestone, or <laughs> I, don't, I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I was gonna say like what does what does anti milestone mean? Like a comic book universe of all white characters? We <laughs> are pretty close to ha- we're really close to having an all white milestone, you know, all white superhero universe. So. Um, Catalyst Prime is the name of the superhero universe and the line that Lion Forge Comics is going to be launching in May of next year. And I'm the senior editor for that line, and I have a great group of creators whom have come on board for this from different backgrounds, writers, artists, letterers, colorists, and... We're going to start off with a one-shot, which is going to be co-written by myself and Christopher Priest, and that is going to tell the origin of this universe, and it's going to be illustrated by Marco Torini and colored by Jessica Colleen, and then, and shout out to Greg Pak, who was the one that recommended Jessica to me, so thank you, Greg, and then we're going to have a line of seven books and we're going to roll them out throughout the back half of 2017. And that's basically going to lay out the universe. And I'm just really excited to bring this to the landscape and 
to work with these different creators. We have a really great writer's room. We have Amy Chu, who's well-known for right now she's writing Kiss and Red Sonia for Dynamite, and she's well-known for the Poison Ivy miniseries that she did for DC Comics that was recently collected. And we have Brandon Thomas, who's doing a great science fiction series over for Robert Kirkman's Skybound imprint at Image called Horizon. Oh, yeah. We have David Walker, who's writing Power Man and Iron Fist and Occupy Avengers for Marvel Comics. We have Dr. Sheena C. Howard, who was the co-editor and co-writer of Black Comics, Politics of Race and Representation, which won an Eisner Award in 2014. We have Joe Casey, who's one of the founders of Man of Action, the co-creators behind Ben 10, Big Hero 6. Um, We have on board Alex DeCampi, and Alex is writing No Mercy for Image Comics, so that's her ongoing series. She's also writing a new heavy metal series, which brings back the female warrior Tarna from the well-known heavy metal um, animated series, and she's written Wonder Woman. She's also writing another image series called Mayday, which is a spy series, and so she's on board. And then we have, oh, man, there's so many. Um, Well, Christopher Priest who I previously mentioned, and it's really great having him aboard because he's really one of the most intelligent writers in comics today. He wrote the longest run on Black Panther. He is now writing Deathstroke. And so having him on board is really great to me. And then we have Ramon Govea, who is a film producer, And he actually created one of the titles that Joe Casey is writing, which is basically going to be our team book. And so that's basically our writer's room there. And then we have a ton of different creators. It's a really long list because you're talking about seven books. And it's really exciting. And I'm thrilled that we're able to give the comic book industry and medium something new in the sense that a lot of the different houses, their continuities and mythologies are decades old, almost a century old. And with Catalyst Prime, everyone is invited to this new universe. And it is diverse. It's diverse because the world is diverse. It's not diverse as good PR. It's not diverse as a gimmick. It's diverse to somehow represent the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's an invitation to everybody. Nobody is excluded. And one of the things that's very interesting is when you talk to people about diversity, for some reason, they believe that means anti-white. So, People get surprised when I tell them there are white superheroes in the Catalyst Prime universe. 
And my thing is, well, if you're going to include everybody, how are you going to exclude anybody? So, again, everyone is invited, and the goal is not to check off all the boxes, but to show people that our intention is to start from a place in which you're going to see different types of heroes, and then we'll expand outward as we grow and continue. So that's been the big thing that's been taking up my time right now. I can imagine. <laughs> and I have to say one other thing, too. You know, um, later on in the show, uh, we're going to address this uh, controversy with Margaret Cho and Tilda Swinton. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel ashamed somewhat that I was unaware of Bobby Lee, the comedian Bobby Lee's podcast, Tiger Belly. And even the, the name Tiger Belly is humorous. And I was, I've been a big fan of Bobby Lee from, um, from Mad TV. And uh, it was, it was <laughs> when you, it, this is what is, it, it's so important to, to really connect with other communities, uh, other folks of color who are going through a similar situation. But with Tilda Swinton approaching uh, Margaret Cho for, for cover, and other folks not getting the conversation. Like I knew I knew exactly what was going on, but now they're trying to make uh, Ms. Cho into some kind of villain, which she clearly is not. She's just telling you this is how these how people think. And when you talk about uh, diversity being perceived as anti-white, all you're asking for is just an immersive immersive culture. You're asking for everyone to be included. You're asking for a, a fullness of of the conversation, a fullness. Of participation, so I, I don't know why we still kind of. I think this election, and I could talk about that forever. Let's not touch that. But the, the election is very much um, working in tandem with that belief that certain people feel left out when the discussion of diversity comes along. So let me ask you this: um, what what do you see as being distinct? With what you're doing at Lion Forge, because you, you, I, you were, I was right on, right in your mind when you said, "Well, these other properties that are mainstream are almost, almost a century old." What do you, what is Lion Forge doing in your, in your um, estimation that's going to be more refreshing besides the, besides the diversity issue? What, what do you foresee that makes it a little bit distinct from the, the, the mainstream cats? Well, for one thing, we don't have to work our way towards an inclusive universe. We're going to be inclusive right off the bat. In terms of what's going to be distinctive, I think because we're new, we are establishing the voice and tone of the universe. When you're dealing with other companies with decades of continuity, the voice of any given series or intellectual property changes. It changes with the time. So I was having a discussion with my fiancé a few years ago, and I explained to her all the different times Superman's origin was redone between 2000 and 2014. And she asked, how could anyone keep track of that? How could anyone decide what the Superman story is? And so Catalyst Prime avoids that confusion because – the audience is going to start the journey as we start the journey. And so 
that's one distinctive element. Another distinctive element to me is the collection of creators that we have, the writers that I told you about, because I feel that sometimes you see the same creators doing a heavy volume of work across the industry. And so here, basically, you're talking about seven titles, but on seven of those titles, I have women writers on three of them. Okay? So that means automatically I can say that about 50% of the Catalyst Prime line is written by women. What other American comic book publisher can boast that? I don't think there's one. Nope. I can there's, say there's automatically none. that 25% of the Catalyst Prime line is written by black people. What other American comic book publisher can say that? So right off the bat, we're coming to you with ratios that I think say to people that a variety of different voices are invited. And that's what's important to the owner of the company, David Stewart II. That's what's important to Jeff Gerber, the president of the publishing arm of Lion Forge, and that's what's important to all of us. When the company says the line comics for everyone, that's not just a tagline. That's a philosophy. So for me, this universe is an invitation because the problem with a variety of other universes is that they're impenetrable. I would pity anybody who would have to jump into the universe of the X-Men now. Oof. I, I, I couldn't tell them where to begin. I couldn't tell them who all these characters are. I know who these characters are because I've been reading them for a certain amount of years, and even I'm not really into X-Men anymore, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, I was at DC Comics, and I edited Batman, and there were things about Batman now that I just can't, I just can't reconcile. So to me, I think people want something new. Mm-hmm. And that's what this is. You know, something else, I um, and, and I have to, I have you, to commend you. you. I, I have to commend mm-hmm. with you. Uh, likewise, commend you when you mention about um, having having ethnic representation, not only in the storytelling, but in the the you know the writing. Because I was, I was reading um, Wonder Woman today, and Rucker's do Rucker, pardon me, Rucker's doing a great job, but. Mm-hmm. It, it is become, it is becoming annoying, and I'm I'm saying this as as a man, annoying to read these books, and then not to hear a real voice that connects with the character. Um, we know Bendis is with Riri Williams, and I mean, okay, fine, but wouldn't it be? What, I, maybe you might want a black millennial female writer to really get into this Riri Williams. Um, I, I think. I think that's that's an inevitability, but they seem to they seem to still fight the notion that if you have all these characters, whether they're Jewish, Asian, um, uh, Native American, you need that voice to match to match who you're writing. At some point, it's good, isn't there? Isn't there a disconnect? The reason why Luke Cage actually did so well cinematically was maybe because they had people behind the screen, behind the project and in front of it. Now. 
they're, they're in wonderment that it was approved for a second season, and uh, Netflix was went down uh, briefly because of, of, of that. So, uh, again, I, I, I love what you're doing, but I, I'm, I still scratch my head and wonder why are these people still coming up with these characters and having white males writing them? Well, look, um, number one, and I think this speaks to the kind of work that John has been doing for years and is doing as well. I am personally tired of complaining. Mm-hmm. I yeah. feel like the posture of complaining makes one weak. And I Amen think the that. way that you counter the narrative of disproportionate representation is that you present an alternate narrative. So right. to me, Catalyst Prime is going to be the statement. Right? that is going to be, by virtue of its strength, is going to be a criticism of the weaknesses that our industry still has. Now, there's another thing, and this is something that comes up as well, is that the the line doesn't always have to be a straight line. It doesn't always have to be black character, black writer, woman character, woman writer. It must be good, responsible writer. And so I have Alex DeCampi writing a book about a male hero. And that's not something you see a lot. You don't see women writing monthly superhero titles about male superheroes. I also have Joe Casey, who's a white man, he's writing a book with a Latinx teen character. And that could be criticized. But the fact of the matter is, Joe Casey co-created America Chavez. America Chavez is probably the most beloved Latinx character in comic books today. And he didn't have to create that character along with Nick Dragata. So... The the diversity of voices goes in a bunch of different directions. And mm-hmm. what's important is that when we say everyone is invited, when we say inclusive, that we are not talking about some kind of consequential exclusion of anybody or a consequential segregation. Right. So my thing is, I am no longer interested in, well, I was never interested in, um, but I'm really not interested in the complaining anymore. I'm interested in doing things that are going to help get us closer to a meritocracy. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was I was thinking too as you were speaking, Joe, that um a lot of people don't realize this. In fact, Damien has actually posted about this, but so many people used to think that Damien was Damien Duffy, my my, my Right, um, yeah, the threat. Yeah. yeah, is uh <clears throat> yeah, he's he's the he's the adapter of Kindred, right? But he's a he's a white man, cisgender white male, right? And he's dedicated the last twelve years of his life to creating diverse characters, you know, from scratch or what have you. And you know, he's very uh, reverent about the fact that, you know, uh, we adapted this book that was written by this black woman, right? 
but he actually had the chore of delving through this very difficult subject matter and adapting Octavia Butler's work into a comic book script, you know. And so he's actually been doing like a, a blog post about the process wow. on his blog, you know, just come from like from script to what have you. And, you know, I, I would trust Damien to write almost anyone, you know, because he does his research, he respects the, the work, and he also respects the point of view and is actually very, very, um, very humble about the, about the handling of people who, who, who he isn't, you know, and, and I think he's always been extremely respectful of that. He just happens to be white, you know, and he's actually, it's funny because he, like you say, he recently wrote about it on his blog post and thought it was hilarious. It was called, I am curious white. <laughs> well, yeah. hello, guys. Uh, yeah. I, well, I, I got to say, you I, have the creators and, you know, we where we also have to do it is behind the scenes. So that's another thing with Lions right. Forge and Catalyst Prime. I brought on um, Desiree Rodriguez as an editorial assistant, and mm-hmm. I did it not because she's Latinx. I did it because of her viewpoints and her insightful analyses on culture. I wasn't doing it to check off a demographic box. Right. But in learning about her mindset, I knew that that was a mindset that comics needed. And that's the same thing with your partner, Damien. Damien represents a voice that comics needs. Right. And that's the important thing. The important thing is that the voices that are needed, that they be allowed to have access and to create. I agree with that. Well, you know something, and, and, and uh, I, I want to be I want to be clear about this. Um, well, obviously, like like Tony Perrier and his wife Erica Alexander with Concrete Park, um, mm-hmm. and Tony is, is is white. Clearly, he's about about that work. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess no. I guess and I have no to, Tony. And I have to, Tony's not white. You Tony's he's not white. No, no, Tony. Tony's black. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's not white. Yeah. Yeah. Tony's African American. Yeah. Yeah. He's like him. Yeah. He's 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 fair, but no, he's African American. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He's incognito. You know what? He's incognito. I've never the the lightest of black men. I've never been able not to be. I I've been off my game then. I didn't I didn't get well. My my part. Pardon me. For, for Mr. Perrier. Uh, makes sense. Don't come looking for makes sense. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Look what you've done now. Okay. I mean, he's, cause he's, he's, deep, he's deep with it. Cause I, I was like, well, he's pretty, you know, <laughs> I guess I have my moment then. Um, well, taking, taking him off the table, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, I would say that, and I go, to, I defer to, to my co-partner, my partner, um, uh, Claire Linnae, she uses the term de- default positioning a lot. And I've co-opted mm-hmm. what she said. It's very clear. My, my issue is not that white, white people and other folks can't write for each other because, I mean, a good story and a person's talent, I, could, I mean, it, it, you want that. It's just that it shouldn't be a given. It's, it, it, we should at least be at 50% being able to tell our own stories. And, then, right. and still not taking anything away from somebody who wants to tell a story because – they want to tell a story. It just seems like it's always in the 85 to 95 percentile default positioning thing for, uh, for us 
to, for our stories to be told by somebody else. Uh, Claire, well, that ratio is actually probably not that bad, but the problem is there's a lot of work out there that people don't know about. There's a lot of comic books about black characters or outside of the black experience done by black writers, Asian writers, Latinx writers. Not all of them are distributed through Diamond, so not all of them make it into the comic book stores. But if you go to the different conventions and museums, for example, the upcoming John Bird comic book convention, then you will meet some of these people. The same, I imagine, goes for film. What happens is when we see a ratio that is disproportionate against us, it compels us to create. It compels us to fill the vacuum. Because if you're waiting for the gatekeepers to give you all of the opportunities, you might be waiting into the grave. Right. So at a certain point, you have to find like-minded people, you get together, and you seize the opportunities. So the ratio probably isn't that bad, or the public perception of the ratio is because the system is holding back some of our product. And what I think we have to do is figure out how to circumvent the gates. How do we get over the gates or get around the gates? Or how do we attract people to our houses so it's not about getting past the gate of another house, but it's about creating gateways to our houses? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's Dar- something that I've Dar- been really concerned with. So. Daryl, I know you have some questions as well. You've been chomping at the bits. Oh, right. And well, you know what? For for Mr. Illich, you know, me and Joe mix it up on on Twitter all the time. It's and true. the the one thing I want I want him to talk about briefly is I know he says he doesn't want to to deal with other universes, but being an ex-Batman editor, he came up with something on Twitter the other day that caught a lot of flack. Where he reintroduced, he went, hey, you have all of these back characters, you know, here's Cassandra Kane, and you went with the first, the first Batwing. And talking about like an anthology, like team series, if you were on the book saying, okay, I'm going to keep the spotlight on these characters, just to show that they're still around in the Bat universe, to, keep, yeah, to, I- to give people an inkling. Yeah, I did two tweets. One was, imagine if Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown were both in a comic book called Batgirls. And then I did right. another one that said, what if Duke Thomas and Tiffany Fox were in a comic book called Soul of the Bat? Oh, and basically, yeah, I remember that. And basically what I was just, just trying to do was put a sharp focus on the diversity within the Batman universe and in the youth. You know, it's like Cassandra Kane is in Detective Comics, but she's not Batgirl. Her name is Orphan, which I can't stand. No. She's I not hate that name. She's, yeah, she's not because that's like every time you call her, hey, person with no parents. 
Like, that's what it means every time you wow. call her. Hey, person with no parents. Yeah. You know, you're in battle. Hey, person with no parents. No one's calling Superman an orphan. He's an orphan. Right. right? So why are we calling yep. the Asian girl an orphan? Why doesn't she get to wear the bat on her chest? You know, so that's my issue with that. As far as I'm concerned, the bat girl is a designation. It's a badge of honor. And more than one person can be a bat girl at the same time. Well, so why it? can't there be a book called Bat Girls? Well, what, wasn't she wasn't she bad girl uh, going back maybe seven years ago? Well, going back further, that was during my editorial run as part of the Batman group, and she was created in 1999. Wow, she became, yeah, she yeah she became Batgirl in 1999, and the Batgirl series with her came out in 2000, and so. You know, Cassandra's been around for a while, and that was just me kind of having a little fun. You know what I mean? Although Brandon Thomas, who's one of the Catalyst Prime writers, he was like, dude, stop giving DC good ideas. If they don't know what they're doing, you don't have to help them out. I, I like, know. Okay. That was hilarious. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Like, shh, Joe, yeah. Yeah, we want to use some of these ideas. Come. Yeah, Brandon Thomas and Quaza, Quanza, <laughs> um, Yefo, who's the writer of the Black series, they were like, Shut up, shut up, stop giving them good ideas. I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll keep my ideas to myself. I got to keep them focused on the Catalyst Prime universe. So, again, you right. know, that's a situation where we are going to have stories of characters of different age ranges, and that's how we can tackle these things. You know, it's like, Sometimes I throw a tweet out there just because I just want to have some fun, but it does identify the deficiencies of what is out there already, and that gives other people opportunities to fill those holes. And you don't fill those holes as a gimmick. You fill those holes because they shouldn't be holes. Yeah, especially when they had the We Are Robin series which oh. was a good, like, step, but then they totally just disregarded it, threw it to the side. Here you have these kids. Did they cancel that? Yeah, they they canceled oh. it, and then all of a sudden they go, like okay, kid. well, we're going to take Duke Thomas, and we're going to put him in detective here, and, like, we'll put him here and then overshadow him over here. And then the rest of the kids that were in that, they just scattered to the four winds. So essentially they Generation X'd it, they knew X Men. It they they pick a teen book. They Teen Titans did. You know, <laughs> hey, we we use your kids to fill our diversity uh, quotient, and now that no one's looking, bye. Well, you know what, and that's why. Honestly, I feel like we're giving them too much publicity right now. Yeah. You know, do they do they deserve that publicity that we're giving them right now? When nope. they don't when they, when they don't speak to us with sincerity, I dare say no. You know, I'm much more interested in Kindred by John Jennings and Damian Duffy than I am in an aborted attempt at diversity from one of the two Titans. Mm-hmm. You know, because you I know that one of them is, in every Catalyst book. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, dude, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And, and that's the thing. Sorry. That's another thing we have to do. As consumers, we 
have to support each other with these quality endeavors, you know, um, because money is where the power is when it comes to exposing things, giving them more visibility, giving them more viability in the public eye. You know, we accept or reject the status quo with our financial purchases. Mm -hmm. And it's as simple as that. So if you say that you believe in a creative meritocracy, but your purchases only support, in general, one community or one publisher that has presented itself as incapable of meeting the needs of a broader audience, then you are part of the problem. Right. You know? And so we all have to decide not only ideologically, not only on social media, but with our money and with our efforts. Do we want to be part of a solution? Do we want to try and paint a better world? Because here's the thing. Art is now more important than ever because no matter what side of the line you're on, our nation and as a byproduct our world is about to go through a serious paradigm shift. Mm, And, you know, people like us are still getting murdered like dogs Our murderers are getting away with it. I mean, what's happening, what was happening with the Dakota pipeline when you would see a picture of a soldier in an armor that looks like something out of Halo looking down at like a young Native American girl and you're like, wait a minute, this is the world in which I live? That is not a movie? That's real? When these things are happening and the human body is so vulnerable, Art is bulletproof. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these, this thing that we're doing times, we is should not be getting good art. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm looking forward to. I think I mentioned it just in a, um, an interview with Chicago now that I think that this particular space that we're about to enter to is going to be an exciting space for for the arts in general. So absolutely, that's that's, that's one caveat. You know, that's one thing that's going to happen. I think. Because we, we, as Joe is saying, we fight with our art. And as um, Joe, uh, James Baldwin always says, or used to say, you know, it was, uh, you know, artists are here to, to, you know, to disturb the peace. So that that's kind of like what we're supposed to be doing, you know. So mm-hmm. I agree with that. And, and, I agree and with celebrate that. each other. Right. You know, we, we, we challenge the system, and part of the challenging of the system is – self-celebration and self-recognition. And that's what's going to happen going forward. So I think it could really be an exciting time for creative endeavors across the board. I think neurons Mm -hmm. are going to fire in some interesting ways, and I think you're going to see some really interesting comics. You're going to see some interesting television. I mean, hell, we got Queen Sugar and Atlanta already 
we you right. know we have Issa Rae killing it on HBO already. So, you know, things will go into hyperdrive. And, and even, so even, I'm kind of looking the, forward uh, to the future of art. I'm yeah, looking forward to the Star Trek of creativity. Even the Star Trek Discovery is having mm. uh, Michelle Yeoh and uh, I think what two two black actresses as well, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Right, the main Some... character of Discovery is one of the actresses from The Walking Dead. Right. Yeah, Shaniqua Green. Yeah, mm-hmm. and she's going to be like the the eyes. I think like it's going to be from her perspective. So it's going to the first time. Well, I guess the first time that right because she's a, a lieutenant Trek captain. Piece. I think she's a lieutenant. Yeah, exactly. And and so this is the first time that the protagonist or the main you know point of view will be well, someone that's not the captain, which I think is a, that in itself also I think is extremely innovative as well. And I think speaks right. to Roddenberry's vision of what he wanted to do with Star Trek. So. Yep, gentlemen. Yep. I, I want you to. I want you to. Put, um, if I could place you guys on hold for a moment, we got, we got to take a quick break. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But after the break, I, I want to uh, expand it a little. We have some callers as well, but I want to ex- expand this with the Margaret Cho versus versus uh, Tilda Swinton debacle. I have some audio for our listening audience that might be interesting as to what that exchange is all about. All about. And uh, I think dovetailing on what Joe was just talking about is that as we enter this new new space, that there's going to be some push and pull, and it's going to be, hopefully, hopefully we will get the art that we, we, should be, we should be proud of, that's going to be introspective and interesting and very visceral. Uh, we will see, but it's going to be very interesting because um, after January 20th, 2017, I suspect all hell is going to break loose. I'm just saying. Uh, folks, you're listening to the Grindhouse edition of Afternoon featuring Captain Kirk. We have a full-packed house we have the mighty Joseph Illich. We have, of course, John Ira Jennings from the Schomburg Black Comic Festival. Kindred is coming out. Pick it up. I'm definitely expecting a signed copy, sir, next month. So There we go. Okay. I'm, so ha- I'm so happy about that book. Um, and part of, our, part of our machinery here, we do give Urban Alternative, Urban Alternative Groove. It's ho- the holiday season, so I've got to play some holiday music for a moment. And then I'm going to play this clip of Margaret Cho versus Tilda Swinton. So hold on, folks. The call-in number, hold on, callers. The call-in number remains constant, 646-915-9620. Again, 646-915-9620. This is more classic stuff. Santa's got a big bag of soul. The Soul Saints Orchestra. I'll give you about two minutes. We'll be right back.
that's supposed to be for an Asian person, they, they change it mm-hmm. to a white person. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, they did that with 21. Oh, they we did killed that this one, too. Till, yeah. Recently. Yeah. So she, Doctor um, Strange, yeah. Go she uh, uh, contacted me. Um, <laughs> the, you Wait, know, Tilda Swift contacted you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, um, it was uh, <laughs> uh, Mrs. Swan, you know, um, Alex. Yeah, Alex Borstein, yeah. Alex Borstein. Borstein. She hooked us up. Which is the most <laughs> ironic. <laughs> she you up like? she so Ms. Alex Borstein, right? If anyone knows, was on yeah. Magic yeah, yeah, D, right? She did play Miss Swan. She's a she's a white girl, yeah, yeah. right? So she does it. To me, Miss Swan was hilarious. I it's think fu- it's hilarious. Funny to me. Funny I like. To me. It. I think it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, so she said, "Is it cool if I give Tilda your number because she wants to talk to you?" Oh my god! And I go, okay. "All right." <laughs> and uh, so then yeah. Tilda, well, Tilda emailed and eventually emailed me, and um, she said uh, uh, that she didn't understand why people were so mad about Doctor Strange, uh. and she wanted to talk about it, you know, and uh, and wanted to get my take on why all the Asian people were mad, and t- you know, long conversation, and it was so weird, you know, yeah. and I I was like, you know, she, could, she, could you please. Tell them not to be so. I'm like, but I can't tell. Them <laughs> <laughs> you are the a, president of all yeah. Asians. Yeah. 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 Well, you are. You are. Yeah. The, you are the president. American division. But it was like, yeah. I don't have a yellow phone under a cape. <laughs> <laughs> right. like, yeah. Hello. <laughs> don't be mad. Don't be mad. <laughs> so Tilda. Yeah. We should though have that. There should be a lo- yellow phone. Oh, yeah. Representative Margaret. You should go to Margaret's house. And a cake dome. Yeah, I'm nominating her. Nominating her. Yeah, we'll yeah. do it right now. And I think everyone would hands down. You're the person. So, <laughs> should we call Cape? Yeah, yeah. We're going to call Cape. Let's call Cape. Let's call Cape right now. <laughs> um, yeah. But we had a long discussion, and she also wanted me not to tell anybody, so don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, I won't tell anybody. I promise. She said, don't tell anybody. Yes. And then I, you know, but it was a long, like, kind of a fight about why the part should not have gone to her. That's what I thought. Yeah. The part should not have gone to her. And uh, we had a fight about it, and, and um, basically it ended with her saying, well, I'm producing a movie with Steven Yeun starring. Oh, oh, like, oh. I have a black friend. I can see, I can do this. Yeah. yeah. Like, see, oh. I, I'm producing I'm paying my dues for, yeah. your, um, for the Asians, so yeah. therefore I can be them. Yeah. yeah. But at least well, you... All right, folks, we're back uh, once again. Uh, at the top, that was Santa's Got a Bag of Soul, courtesy of the Soul Saints Orchestra. This is the Grindhouse, folks. They have a fully packed house. Uh, that bit of audio was from the Tiger Belly podcast, courtesy of Bobby Lee, uh, the mighty Bo- Bobby Lee, the comedian uh, from from Mad TV. And that was also the uh, iconic comedian, uh, Margaret Cho. So I want to open it up a little bit. Uh, we have, of course... Joseph Illich and John Ira Jennings. Let me bring everyone back. We have some calls also. Um, I wanted to play that exchange because, one, I, I am going to be uh, subscribing to the Tiger Belly podcast from here on out. Um, I did not know <laughs> that Bobby Lee – I, I, I love Bobby Lee. He, he is frighteningly funny. And even before, the, even before the exchange, they were talking about Stephen Yoon from Walking Dead and how he was going up for a part Bobby Lee's going up for a part, and he's been in the business for a while, and he's older. And he sees Steve, who comes in, who's younger and who's hot, who is a hot property, and he said to him, 
why are you re- he had to read for six lines. Why why am I he said, Why are you reading for six lines? Like you are a hot property and he said if you were white you wouldn't be reading. Someone with your with your um access now. So he said, Listen, dude, I still have to read. And also the exchange with, with Tilda Swinton was very curious to me that she felt the need to contact Mar- Margaret Cho. Um Wow. Uh, it's going down in, in Trump's America still. Uh, Claire, our West Coast correspondent, um, you are an actress. Uh, you are also of Asian descent. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that exchange? I know I was I was just like, hey, this is business as usual, but it's still very, very painful. And also the the fact that people seem to think that because there's an actual email. This goes a little deeper, too. There's so an actual email exchange. Was there, I'm sorry. Was there a conversation over the phone? Because that's, uh, that's, I was under that impression. Both. Well, which, there was a, a conversation over the phone, and there was an email thing. Because after this came out, then Tilda goes, wait, I didn't sound that bad. Let me go in. Here's the emails we sent each other. <laughs> mm. There you go. Well, what they're saying is that you know the the emails are a little bit more formal and polite. Okay, so now folks are thinking that well, this is not how Margaret described it, but I think Margaret described it more accurately as to why are you contacting Margaret Cho in the first place? But no one wants to have that conversation. They're ta- they're too caught up in the polite politeness of the email exchange and not the undercurrent as to why you're contacting this notable Asian actress and comedian in the first place. Claire, your thoughts? And then we'll, we'll open up to our guests as well. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like, I, when I first came across this, I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't really pay it that much mind. I just... It just sounded so ridiculous that I just thought, okay, well, you guys are having a laugh, and okay, and then all of a sudden, Vanity Fair, Huffington Post, and this suddenly became like news, like this was real. So I'm, I'm just confused. If I'm, okay, okay. Now, in terms of, if I were to really dissect what I have come across in in the information that I've been given, I would say, yes, it is curious. It is curious. It's maybe a little confusing or suspect even, if I were to go sinister or, you know, go, go deep like that, as to why Tilda felt the need to reach out to a well-known, you know, Asian, you know, I... I did read I did read most of the emails. I didn't um it's, it was very odd. Huffington Post published both sides of the conversation, but Vanity Fair only published Tilda's side of the conversation. So I'm not entirely caught up on 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 that part of it, but I'm it yeah, it's it it looks a little strange. It definitely makes me furrow my brow. Sure. And even as polite and and heartfelt 
or uh, or or you know sincere or whatever as the emails may have come across or were meant to be presented I would say it's still I could tell just by just by really going into it that there is a clear you know a clear level of ignorance I um I I just found it interesting, you know? I just found it interesting because personally out of all the different times in which we have discussed this on the show, when I discuss this with other people, that is something that I've always wondered about because I was getting really tired of all their excuses. I was getting really tired of all the backpedaling as to why the character could not be Tibetan, could not be, you know, an Asian woman, every possible avenue with which they were trying to duck, you know, duck the issue, it was getting tiresome. It was just, it was getting frustrating, all the different tactics they would try to come up with in terms of why they did what they did. Oh, well, we don't want to piss off China. We don't want, really? Oh, okay, okay, so why didn't you hire, you know, <laughs> why why wasn't it more important to you to, to actually have a Chinese character in the damn movie if you're so worried about making all that Chinese money? So don't give me any more excuses. Just keep your mouth shut. Just keep your mouth shut. Let me see the damn movie before you keep pissing me off. So that's, where, that's, you know, honestly where I was at, even though I was seriously very curious about what the actual mindset was. Like, seriously, can, can I just be a fly on the wall in that conference room, you know, at Marvel Studios or at Disney? Can I just listen in and really know what the hell is going on that made you go down this road? But it just, it just, it's like, why bother? They even admitted that there was not going to be a Wong character in the original script. They admitted that. They admitted we weren't even going to have a Wong. But because we changed the ancient one, there's no way we're going to have all these characters running around dressed as monks and not have at least one Asian. At least one. So that's the only reason why Wong is even there. That's the only reason why his character, in their minds, was uh, beefed up a bit. You know, not not the uh, tea-making manservant, as uh, as the actor Benedict Wong had stated. So I have a lot of conflicting feelings about this. Okay, because it is a point of contention. It is frustrating especially when it doesn't stop. There's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. Ghost in the Shell, the Great Wall, mm. there's no end mm. in sight. So I just kind of threw my hands up and was like, I'm tired of talking about this. I'm tired of complaining if no one's going to be listening anyway. You know? Well, well, we're definitely I'm, listening. I, and so, uh, the whole thing about this, though, if I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really know what's going on here. I don't really know what's going on. I, I believe the emails when Tilda acts like she just doesn't know what's going on. I believe her when she says, I truly don't understand 
why people are so upset. Because from our point of view, just the fact that we changed this character from being a Fu Manchu stereotype, a dated, you know, outmoded way in which to have an Asian character, we did that. And we have another female in a very sausage-fest world that is comic books. I mean, that that's diversity. That counts as diversity. So I don't understand why people are so upset. When she says that, when she says it as polite, as polite and regal as the language is in the text of the emails, when she says that, I believe her. I believe her. I believe her when she says, I do not understand. I believe that. Okay? But, but if I were to look at the situation on the whole, objectively, because let's just face it, we don't really know what's going on here. I just don't know what's going on here. But I would say, unfortunately, unfortunately, if Margaret was trying to start some ish, okay, if Margaret wanted to pick a fight by just, you know, throwing all this out on on Bobby Lee's podcast, she she didn't play her hand correctly. I'm just going to say that. Because even though I'm really not interested in taking sides here, because I'm sure people assume that, oh, you're Asian, so of course you're going you're gonna to side with Margaret Cho. Not necessarily. I don't like the way she handled this. I don't like the way she played her hand because ultimately she painted the picture through hearsay. So uh, Tilda, Tilda and her lawyers, they're like, oh, okay, you want to you wanna play it like that? Okay, well, we're going to release these emails. Now who looks like the fool? Now who looks like the liar? Because well, they have uh, it in, in text, whereas she only has hearsay. Trying to make I, it I seem wanna, like I, Tilda is so awful and that they had this huge fight. See, that's, that's where I'm, I'm like, Margaret, I'm sorry. You played this wrong. You played this wrong. On that note, I want to open it up a little bit to our, to our guests uh, because of time constraints. Um, uh, John, what are your thoughts about that exchange with um, with with Cho and Tilden? Well, here's the thing. I um I haven't had a chance to. I, I saw it flash in my uh, my feed, but you know, as you know, I've been you know swallowed by boxes because I'm in, in the uh, the midst of packing. Um, but um, my opinion about the the overall ideology around like you know around whitewashing in general, I think it's, it's something that obviously has been very pervasive, you know, through the, through all of our history, especially like, you know, entertainment industry. And I agree. Of course. I think that they, I think that they should have uh, cast a Asian woman. If you're going to, you know, if you're going to do the, the, the gender bending, you know, the race bending thing, I think it was kind of pushing it too much. They try to like fix it by making her what Celtic or what have you, or what, you know, but oh. at the end of the day, you know, Let's, let's, just, let's just boil it down like this. The character, the Doctor Strange character, like a lot of superhero characters, are very, is very problematic when it comes to race anyway because the, um, the space originally was created for, um, it's a white male, cisgender, you know, power fantasy. That's, that's, that's it. where it is. That's, that's it. That, I mean, that's the, that's the initial intent. It's a power fantasy in general, but the intended audience, you know, for decades has been the white, you know, straight male, right? And so these particular stereotypes are inherited from 
you know, generations of of how uh, people who are considered quote unquote other in our country. So that's one of the main pieces there. I, I really haven't had a chance to to to, to speculate around the exchange. I felt like a, the gist of it, but again, um, I have to agree um, that I I am not surprised that. Um, you know that that Miss Swinton, you know, was unaware of what was going on. Because if it doesn't necessarily concern you, then a lot of times you're not really privy to it. If it's not affecting, you know, you, and that's and that's just human nature in general. I'm, I'm sure she's a fine person, whatever, you know. But you know, there there there's a, there's definitely like a blind spot when it comes to how you know race is constructed and all these different issues that we have to deal with. Um, yeah, someone needs to have her read uh, Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of Privilege. That's the first thing. Everybody everybody who's, who's white should read that first piece if they haven't, you know, already. So, wow. Uh, because basically, I don't have it, – it's, it's just a listing of things that the, the, the woman who wrote it, who is a white woman, um, discovered, you know, this kind of notion around intersectionality and, and politics, not really thinking about, you know, feminist, uh, you know, thought with, without – uh, looking at race too, and so basically it's a listing of things that she could do as a white woman in America that someone who isn't uh, can't do, and it's called unpacking unpacking the 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 invisible knapsack of privilege, and it's and it's just a list of, and and it's just simple things, you know, and a lot of times you know when you are in a space of power, you are not privy to those particular things. So I'm gonna stop talking. How about that? <laughs> so. Joe, Joe, any any impressions on the exchange? Wow. Well, I mean, I don't know if there's something that Claire and John did not cover. Uh, um, I also did not engage this immediately when it came across my feed because I've been busy doing other things. That's part of the thing that sometimes we're busy doing the fight and we don't catch all the news. But recently reading up on it, it didn't seem to be incendiary to me. It seemed to be an exchange between two intelligent women, and I think part of it is we can criticize Tilda Swinton's ignorance of what seems obvious to us, but in conjunction with that criticism... I think it's also fair to say, but at least she asked the question. And at least she didn't ask the question of a white person. Because that happens a lot, right? Where you will go to someone like you instead of the other that you're concerned about to say, hey, please explain this to me because you're afraid of being attacked because you're afraid of being confronted with the full weight of your own lack of understanding. But she did it. She was like, hey, please explain this to me because from my point of view, this and this were done. And, you know, as Claire pointed out, when you see the amount of examples of whitewashing and Asian culture, all compressed together in such a short time period, that is the most horrifying thing, that 
it represents this moment in history where that is the narrative. And if those things make money, if they are considered successes by Hollywood, then that model will be replicated. Mm-hmm. And I think there's talk now about a Naruto live action oh, boy. film coming out, right? So that's a that's a that's an understandable fear that due to the whitewashing being wrapped in genre films that have a halfway decent chance of being financially successful that the diminishment of your culture in popular entertainment will be accelerated. And the excuse of it will be, it makes money. So, you know, there's a, there's a real fear there. And it's understandable. And I don't know what the immediate answer to it is. I don't know if it can be solved in five years. But I know that if people start creating the products that challenge that, films, web comics, novels, um, academic nonfiction, that eventually you're whacking away at that. But you definitely can't let it slide. You have to fight it every time. You have to examine yeah. it every time. And then in back of that, come up with the alternative. Come up with what it would be the right way. If, if in your opinion, Iron Fist now should be Asian American, and he is not, then someone come up with what Iron Fist should be. Mm-hmm. And, let's, and let's get that into the system now. So that maybe in 15 years, that can fight Iron Fist as the narrative. Right? We have, but we need, uh, we need to yeah. introduce the ideas now so that they can grow and nurture and create the counter-narrative. We have a caller. I.E. Uh, Nick Fury. For the, for the DMV, 703, welcome to the Grand House. <laughs> Okie dokie. Play some good jazz there. Is, that, is this 703 DMV? <laughs> what's up? Hey, what's going on? Can you hear me? Got you, bye. Full house, vice. That's good. Um, I'm not going to comment. I think Claire has covered that enough, and that's sort of not my lane, so I'm going to stay clear of that. Um, I have a view on it, but not tonight. Uh, first, I want to commend your guests. Unlike the uh, other people, I don't have a podcast. I'm not a comic a creator. I'm a consumer. So I want to kind of point my comments in that direction. First, what do you want us as readers and consumers to do? Outside the obvious is purchase your products. And second, and this is something I've, I've wanted to speak to um, creators of color um, because of social media is kind of, it's very easy to put your products out there. But one of the things which I'm finding is not too many of you want to step out of the bubble of 
San Diego, New York Comic Con, Brooklyn. Um, but there are other places we are, and there are other spaces that um, consumers, whoever, I'm not going to use color as a, a pretext, um, reside. And that's one of the things I've noticed about some of the comic creators. They don't want to venture out. I know comic book conventions is where you go for comic readers, but there are also other places where there's potential readers that comic book convention, I mean, comic book creators never look at. And I'll just give a couple just off the top of my head. Like, let's say the Essence Festival. Now, I know there are costs to be mm-hmm. there or whatever. Um, the CIAA tournament in Charlotte is an African-American conference. It's one of the largest gathering of professionals um, in the country. So I just want to put that out there in regards to um, going out, displaying your product. There are other so-called, unquote, non-conventional spaces where you can go, and I don't see a lot of that happening. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll stop and listen right there. No, I, I think right, you're bye. absolutely right. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, I was. This is something I've been thinking about quite a bit. Um, you know, I, for the last, uh, I don't know, a few, at least five to, to, to seven years, I've been engaged actively with, like, as Joe was talking about, you know, sp- spreading um, content by African American creators into various spaces, into the archive, into, you know, into curricula. And, and, and into other spaces. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I've, I've actually uh, been doing a lot of research recently onto into which spaces that are already quote unquote black spaces or spaces that are alternative spaces where we can actually introduce these uh, these narratives to. Because um, I, I really personally, I think that the the mainstream audience or the mainstream comic book industry really was never it was never created for us to, be, to thrive at. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. And so and so you know. Yeah, I mean, what are we supposed to be? I mean, we want people to start. With. We weren't expected to to live, you know, after Reconstruction. I mean, there's there's documentation. <laughs> that we're not, you know, saying that we were supposed to die out because we're too stupid to to take care of ourselves, right? That that was a narrative around Black people in America. So of course, these particular spaces of fantasy were not they were not created for us, you know. So what I've been thinking about is what I call the uh, laughingly called the, the the cosmic chitlin circuit is actually looking at spaces where we actually have thrived and try to bring the content to those spaces. So I definitely uh, um, commend you, sir, for, 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 for making that same assessment. I, I'm looking at spaces like Death and Festival, um, for instance, or, or other, other places like, um, like the massive hair show that happens in, in Atlanta twice a, twice a year. It's like 40,000 people a year go to uh, Atlanta, and they actually do have vendors of other kinds. Uh, we have other types of distribution that we should be looking at. If, if Diamond or, or um, you know, or, or the or the direct market doesn't want to carry us, then we create other spaces. So that's why over the last five years, I've co-created, you know, three uh, pretty large, you know, ethnocentric conventions. One is SoulCon, which is the first Black and Latino comic book convention that we've done for two years straight. We're going to do. I'm going to start one out in West Coast, and then also. Um, like I said, the, the BCAP, which is in its third year, and the Shabra, which is in its fifth year. But there also is a network of other cons. There's Xbox, there's Mechacon, there's uh, Motor City uh, Black Age of Comics, there's Onyx Con. So yep. we actually are trying to create a network of these particular cons that can that can actually support 
you know, the, this interest. And most of the times those particular spaces aren't in the, in the convention halls. They're actually in institutional spaces, right? And actually, to a certain degree, traditionally historical, historically black spaces, right? Um, so I think, I think you're right. I think that, that there is something to be said about that, that these, these types of connections have to be made. But I think that there's a certain amount of nostalgia that's connected to comics that actually we, that we get into, but also as a detriment too. Like we want to see, we want to be able to make a monthly comic book. But if you're a single creator and you're and you're a, and you're a barber during your most most of the time, um, when do you make the comic book? It takes forever to actually make even a single comic. So we need to think about like the fact that we're not in competition with these massive spaces. Marvel and DC are not comic book companies. They are IP farms. They're massive multinational That's companies, right. not comic book conventions. That's to say they're not comic book companies. They look like them, but they're not. In fact, DC and Marvel could, cl- could probably close down the comic book making aspect and they, would, they wouldn't miss any money. There are like millions of people who love Spider-Man who've never opened up a damn Spider-Man comic book. That's I'm sorry, right. I just went off on the camera. Anyway, like, okay, go. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, I think... I'm very passionate about that, though. I mean, I think you, you, you really laid it out eloquently, and in terms of identifying or reaching other markets, that involves business strategy. And I think a lot of creators, they might not have the business savvy. It's It's hard to be of both minds. So the creators either are going to have to improve their business chops to think outside of that market or ally with business people who can help them get outside that market. I mean, I remember when my fiancé and I went to the Museum of Modern Art recently in New York, and there we saw a book that John was a co-editor of and contributed to called The Blacker the Ink, Constructions of Black Identity in Comics and Sequential Art. And so right there, this is in the Museum of Modern Art. This is a place where New Yorkers and all these different tourists are going to come to, and they're going to find this book. So this book has already reached spaces that have nothing to do with the collection of comic book stores. Mm-hmm even though it is going to speak to that. So it takes either being involved in one of those industries or it takes finding a way to get there through business connections, finding, well, what's, what's the common bridge that works for both of us? Because it has to be a mutually beneficial arrangement. It can't just be beneficial for you. It has to be beneficial to the outlet that you want to have your work. So that's something to think about in terms of what readers and consumers can do. Purchase is one, and get the word out about it is another. Yes, right. We use social media, and we talk about everyone else's stuff so passionately. I mean, you go on social media this week, weekend, and it's basically all about Rogue One, Right. Meanwhile, Disney has a ton of money. George Lucas, who sold Star Wars, has a ton of money. 
I don't know if Rogue One needs any publicity from me. I dare yeah. say not. No, I think you're right. What does need publicity? Let's think about that. So it's like if you see something, you buy it, you like it, spend some time and talk about that too in addition to the other things that you love. Like give some time to that. Put some effort into going out and finding that because you're not going to go into a comic book store and there's not going to be a section that is going to say books by black writers. Mm-hmm. books by Latinx writers, books by Asian writers, books by transgender writers, books by LGBTQ writers. <laughs> That's not the way it's going to break down. What you have to do is say, I'm going to try and find that stuff. Go onto Google and just start typing in some phrases. And you'd be amazed what you come up with because this is now popular discussion. No, that's totally true. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, just to kind of piggyback for a second off of that, um, I don't know if you guys realize this, so, but I run, me and Damien, we, we, we run this uh, this Facebook page called Black Comics, American Independent Comics Art and Culture. It's, it's named after the book that we co-edited back in 2007 that we actually are going to do a follow-up to. And whenever I post something about an independent black space, we might get, I don't know, depending upon what it is. Like we might get, say, like 700 hits or 300-some hits. But I posted this image of this sister who was doing an Ironheart post, an Ironheart right. cosplay. It got mm-hmm. over 100, it got 163,000 hits. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I put up something like, I put up the thing about the Schomburg. And, it, again, the Schomburg has been pushing itself, you know, and, and I think that we're probably going to get our numbers or what have you. But 256 people looked at it. Uh, Tuskegee Airs, 14,000 people looked at it, you know. Um, yeah, and, and or the thing about uh, Tim Tim Fielder's new uh, Maddie's Rocket Project, uh, 411 people looked at it. So even though the, the site, the Facebook page is dedicated to independent comics primarily, and we cover all this stuff. I mean, we're going to post something about the Falcon. We're going to post something about, you know, War Machine, you know, rest in peace. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Jesus, you know. Whatever there we go. Happens, though, whatever happens is is is, is because the, the you know Marvel DC these these huge conglomerates they have so much power to kind of reach the, the mindset that there is this kind of like um, there's this kind of like mistrusting I think of like black products too you know there's also that and I think that's not just about like a quality piece it's about like it's a cultural aspect that you know when someone who's African American makes something is automatically not as good and I'm sorry but that is part of that's part of the mentality I think. And Absolutely. so, yeah, I think it is. And and believe me, I've seen it happen. I'm from, I, I grew up in the South, and I've seen this kind of, like, self-hatred kind of piece going on, too, you know, as far as, like, oh, I mean, that's how, that's how like, you know, after after segregation was ended, all these black communities, like, fell apart because, you know, all the black dollars went to the mainstream, right? And you can see the same thing happening with this to a certain degree. So, right. yeah, I mean... 163,000, that is the most of any post that I've ever put up. And it's just a picture of a, of a, of a beautiful black woman dressed up as Iron Man. And that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. On that note, anyway. Horizon 6, Wednesday. World of Wakanda 2, Wednesday. The Power Man Iron Fist Christmas Special, Wednesday. <laughs> Kiss 3. Hi, Amy Chu. Kiss 3, Wednesday. Folks, Occupy Avengers 2, Wednesday. There. You can't say you didn't hear it from us now. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I'm that, that's some, much all of that. <laughs> well, that, that's something that um, I, I wanted to, and I think we did discuss it to a certain degree um, at the fourth annual comic festival, uh, Black Comic Con. Um, and I was saying that, you know, the, what we're doing right now is revolutionary, just having these podcasts, but I think we should be more more uh, cognizant of their importance as far as disseminating the product because um, what Joe was talking about is very, very integral. That uh, I, I, On our show, if anything, we try our, our best to kind of keep things balanced. We've had uh, folks from, from Africa and their products. You, you know, you have an, a, a burgeoning African presence in, in, in blurdom, in comic book product. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and, and Unique like, studios. The pack. That's right. Right. We had him on a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh, yeah. Pulling that. So, uh, so uh, and um, you're right. It, it, I think I think we're, we're, we're not being comfortable. I mean, we know there's, these, are, these are juggernauts out here as far as the promotion. Disney is a juggernaut, and we understand that. But uh, I do think we have to start to, to engender some more comfort with being able to push our own product. I mean, I listen to all of the, the, the uh, minority imprinted podcasts, but they are overwhelmingly indebted to the promotion of mainstream products. And, uh, you know, I try to make it at least 50, 50. Uh, and even, mm-hmm. and even like, I want to, for instance, we were going to talk about, um, rogue one sort of, but even with the rogue one, my take on the rogue one, rogue one, uh, movie was that it was a minority diverse film. And I want to, I want to put this out there to, to our guests. There's uh see this whole Trump thing is almost unavoidable because uh, allegedly white nationalists have a problem with Rogue One. Now Rogue mm-hmm. One's going to make a whole a whole boatload worth of, worth of money, unprecedented money. It's, it to me it's, it's it's analogous to to the Fast and Furious films except for that it's a space opera. You have Asian representation, black representation. Latino representation and women. I mean, it is truly a, a, a really fine Disney diverse product for science fiction slash space opera. And yet, in Trump's America, you have white supremacists that believe that this is an assault against uh, white culture. And so, so much so that Bob Iger, Dis- Disney's Bob Iger, Kind of, sort of, had to be a culpa saying, "Well, this is not a this is not a political film. This is a film mm. about fighting." I mean, if this were ever a political film, what? How is this not a political film? I mean, I mean, there's, it, it, look, I mean, there's, it's ludicrous. There's two, there's two things you have to consider. I think one is that you know to take a quote from Batman Begins: "Theatricality and deception are powerful agents." And we are dealing in a climate of theatricality and deception. And the fact of the matter is the white nationalist assault on Star Wars Rogue One is not news. And it actually empowers the product that it's against because it brings more attention to it. So Mm -hmm. if their goal is to diminish the power of it, they're failing miserably. Right? And yep. secondly, I mean, if we look at what happened with your website, John, where the most hits came from, you know, an image of Riri Williams, then right. 
if, if that's what's going to happen, then what we have to do is figure out a way to make it a mutually beneficial situation. So if the corporations are going to pimp cultural identity, then how can we pimp their icons? How can we mm-hmm. pimp their co-opting of cultural identity? How do we do it? Right. You have a picture of like a Riri Williams, put a picture of, of your thing right next to it. Right. So when people say one, yeah, they see right. the other. You know what I mean? Use, use their things to bring more attention to our things. And right. because we, we can't escape it. We can't escape it. When no, we no, talk about, right. you know, whitewashing in film, when we talk, when you, when you spoke about the fact that the myths, the heroes like Dr. Strange were created in a prism that was not necessarily inclusive of us, what you're talking about is like colonialism of fantasy narratives, of archetypes. Right. Right. And so basically, it's like, okay, I'm going to take your Doctor Strange and then I'm going to put it next to this. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going no to use that to bring attention to something else. So instead of it being, you know, a one-way um, pimping exercise, you know, let's pimp them too. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I have to admit that with that particular post, we did pick up, say, uh, over 500 new uh, likes on the page. Yeah, you know? so it, that, yeah. So, I mean, because right now we're running at like over 21,000 likes on it, right, on the page. And so what, I, what, we, what we generally use the page for is to promote events, to promote every, basically everything that you're doing, everything that we're all doing. And we'll just post it, you know, and it is a, it is, it's a kind of a virtual conversation about representation across the board, you know, but I, it just strikes me as, you know, sometimes it's frustrating, <laughs> you know, that's all. No but doubt. You're definitely right. We need to, we need to use that uh, to our advantage. I agree with that. Just call it a subliminal attack. All right. You see Riri Williams. Well, here's Rocket. Rocket. Never <laughs> heard of Rocket. Check out Milestone. You'll see who Rocket is. Check out Young Justice. You'll see who Rocket is. Psst. Netflix. Young Justice Season 3. You better have Rocket and Icon in there. Can't tease us at the end of Season 2 and not show them. Anyway, like I said, subliminal attacks. Well, well listen, CW Seed has, what, the second season, even though it's kind of a broken up episode, of, of Vixen. Right. And obviously for, for that even that cartoon to be approved again means they saw a, a, a fair amount. So I look at it, I thought it's, it's a pretty good show. I'm looking at it, and, and I didn't think it was going to get past uh, a, a season one. But they, they, they rejuvenated this, this Vixen thing just for the, the streaming element of it. Um, and, and I think it's important that we, we do have to kind of balance it out. I just think we, should, we do have to do both. We should be, we should be promoting yeah, right. the, Luke Cage, the Luke Cage's and, and the, yeah. the, the the forthcoming Foxy Browns and all of that. Um, I, I just find it interesting that after having seen Rogue One this morning, uh, I was just in awe of how they were able to segue segue Rogue One into Episode Four. And Episode Four is more than forty years old, and yet almost forty years, old, I should say, approaching forty years old. And it was so so much. Uh, basically a white film and then you know the first the pre the prequel going into that 
which is, again, 40 years later, is an all-minority cast that is making, is going to make a boatload of money as if black, brown, yellow representation is not going to make money. It, it, it debunks and defies common sense. I mean, no, Donnie, Yen was a, Donnie Yen was the picture to me. Donnie Yen and Jiang Wen. And yet, uh, they don't want to have Asian representation. And yet, when they do it and pull the trigger, they're shocked that this is probably going to be a billion-dollar movie. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the part that, that boggles my mind. But that's, that's, that's the great thing. All right, you see here here is the fear of the white nationalists. Now that diversity is out there and it's successful on some sort of level, they can't put that genie back in the bottle. Right? That's out there. Now uh, I I saw um uh an Arab comic just to, or uh, an East Indian comic talk uh, today about how he saw Rogue One and here's somebody that looks like me actually playing the hero, you know, actually in a heroic role. That's what they don't get. The, the, the pride that we get seeing someone looking like us, whether you're Arabic, whether you're Latin, whether you're black, whether you're Asian, seeing someone that looks like you being the hero up there, seeing someone looking like you being the cool villain up there. That, that's something you can't take away. That door is now open. Now it's incumbent on us to follow up, them putting the foot in the door, following up with quality to back it up. Don't just go, well, we've had our one. Yeah, we can rest. No, the fight ain't over, people. We got to keep on pushing. Open that door and wide so more can get in. And something else, and we have to be very, very mindful of what Joe and what John have been talking about. Is that, uh, and, and it's very problematic for me being a podcaster and listening to other podcasts and other radio shows. There, there is still a lot, a lot of kind of lamenting and, and wishing for things to be better and, and not really taking initiative to say, listen, we got to do it on our own. I, I'm very mindful that this Trump's America thing is going to take off. And it's going to be, that's why I want to ask, I kind of want to cir- circle this around with our, with our, uh, our panelists. Uh, I, I foresee there being a battle with, with this, these initiatives with Trump's America. I think it's going to be very real. I think, I think we're going to be put in a position. That's why I said that Trump might be the best thing that ever happened to, to minority communities in a way. Because it's going, to force, it's going to force you to do things in spite of what the majority culture is going to do or, may, or what they may want to shut down. Because as long as we're so... Uh, Reliant on, on on white benefactors, they can shut this down at any moment. And I think that you might. Do you foresee that actually happening? And if it does happen, are we prepared to still do what we need to do? Hmm. I'm opening it up. So you want to go first? Wow. Okay. I'll take a <laughs> You might shut it down. Um, <laughs> okay. What, you thought this was going to be easy? No, gentlemen. You should know AfroNerd by now. There is no easy here. Clearly not. I'll jump jump right in and say, (laughs) I'll say this. Um, First off, words have power, right? So 
I'm not going to call this the America owned by that person. Right? This is America. And so if there are ideals that we believe in, we're going to have to fight for them. And the fight is going to become more complicated, obviously. There are more obstacles, obviously. I mean, the, the, the day after that happened, there were just so many conversations going on all over the place. But the fact of the matter is we still have to get out of bed in the morning and brush our teeth and eat our breakfast and do the work mm-hmm. and fight the fight. And that wasn't going to change no matter who got into office. It wasn't like suddenly the nation was going to become a meritocracy and the, and the, the, the number of black bodies being ripped apart by bullets was going to go down. It wasn't going to happen. So our course is clear. And no, we can't become complacent. And in terms of, you know, seeing these images of ourselves and people who are against them not getting it, I think they do get it. I think they do Mm -hmm. get it. I think they understand the threat that it represents, and that's what they're fighting. They're fighting a tide. That is why, after the Ghostbusters film, that's why Leslie Jones was assaulted to the degree that she was on Twitter, because they recognized that she had become iconic. Right. And they wanted to shut that down before it had a greater impact. They know exactly what the power of visualization of identity is. Because what they're trying to preserve is exclusivity on the visualization of identity. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, I mean, just, just to kind of continue on, I mean, one of the things that I love about doing work, like the, the work that we do at the Schomburg, is the fact that when you walk into that space, we are the default. Mm. From from the very from from literally from the foundations, you, you realize that, that some of the ashes of Langston Hughes are buried in the foundation of that wow. place. Wow, that's crazy! Like when you whenever you go into the Langston Hughes Auditorium, you are literally walking over the ashes of one of the greatest American poets to ever live. Right. So that's one thing. I mean, so so as far as like the, the power of visualization, it is a reification. It's an edifice that is constructed around the idea of black excellence. You know. And it is the future, the past, and the present in one space. That's why I love having that event there. Um, the other thing is that there is, a, and this is something that, that you're that you're speaking about, Joe. It's like the fact that there's no teaching of media studies or image making um, or, or the power of images in our schools is actually very telling. It's something that always uh, that drives me crazy. The education system in our country is still very antiquated when it comes to teaching various types of literacy, right? When we Absolutely. still think of literacy, we think about, we think about like reading and writing, right? But we have historical literacy, we have multimedia literacy, we have visual literacy, computer literacy. These are all ways that we read things, right? One thing that comics have always been great at is teaching how to read on multiple levels. You're reading the images, the text, the subtext. It is multimodal in nature. And that is actually very akin to how we've always been taught to, to, to think about learning, right? And so this type of learning, 
isn't isn't taught readily because, like you're saying, they want to control that image because you're absolutely right. The 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 eminence the of these particular types of of, of um, black images in popular culture is it's like a it's like a freight train, you know. I mean, oh my God! I mean, <laughs> wait till the Black Panther movie comes out. That's it's, right. It's, oh my God! We're talking about an unconquered. You know, I mean, essentially, like Black Panther's a pharaoh. Essentially, he's That's a guy right. king, right? He's, a, he's like a pharaoh. And so imagine that coming out. I mean, people have been waiting for it to see this particular character for, you know, generations almost, right? <laughs> like decades. Yes. So, uh, um, yeah, I think that we have to really dig in and, and, and do the work. Now, mind you, when Trump was being elected, you know, um, I was at the I was at the emergency room, and my wife was 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 having a health scare, right? Oh. And so I was to a certain degree insulated by this really, uh, I think, this awful person being <laughs> being elected to the highest to the highest office uh, after I think and a shining example of what a president should be, you know, with his flaws and all. Obama has has been an amazing uh, president, I think. Just to think about the types of um, derision and, and, and uh, you know, threats against his, his life and his family's safety and the, the constant, like, you know, uh, ridicule that he's actually had to deal with because he's mm-hmm. black, you know, actually. And, you know, and this is something that Ta-Nehisi Coast has talked about in an interview. I just saw the meme about it. And he was like, well, you know, you know, I have to jump six feet when, when, when a white person has to jump two feet. You know, and I'm paraphrasing, of course. And he said Obama right. had to be almost, he almost had to be perfect. He almost had to be superhuman to actually become president, whereas Trump just had to be white and relatively wealthy, right? right. So this is the America that we're talking about. This is, but it's always, been a, it's, it's always been a space where, you know, white privilege has been the norm. And so when you see that shifting, and this is a, a, another paraphrase of a, of a quote, it was, um, you know, to, to, you know to, to the entitled, you know, equity feels like uh, uh, oppression or something like that, right? Well, so basically, right. if you're still... If you're like, if you're used to being in power, right, and you see people who aren't in power actually getting some power, it feels unfair. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. You know that's that's how it is. So we're gonna have to keep making it feel like that until it becomes the norm in 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 this new America. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I I I'm hoping our listeners have their ears open. All right, these two gentlemen. They're hitting you with a lot of truth right now. Even if you got one quarter of what they've been talking about for the last two hours, it's a, uh, it's a quarter well spent. Go ahead, Afrinern. Well, what I was saying is that uh, I'm very hopeful that the Black Panther film does very well. I hope it does at least as well as Doctor Strange, or even better than Doctor Strange. But I'm also aware of, uh, again, what he really represents, that character. Um, and I said that also. I, I, had, I had a point of contention that, you know, he's supposed to be more uh, connected and intelligent and brilliant than Tony Stark, and he's got to be arrogant. Uh-huh. A, 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 a thinking, intelligent, uh, autonomous black male, I don't think we've ever seen that in, in, in fiction or in uh, reality as presented for, for, the, for the masses as far as for public consumption. Um, so I, I hope they do right by that character, but I also know, and even Chadwick Boseman, I, I mentioned this 
right when I heard that the movie was coming out, and, and folks thought I was crazy. But I said, listen, you know, uh, in theory, listen, he is, the, he is a black ubermensch. So mm-hmm. uh, it's conceivable for white children to wear Black Panther costumes. And Chadwick Boseman right. had, had, had admitted that, you know, he started seeing that, and it kind of tripped him out a little bit. And, I, and now that we're, we're going to be in Trump's America, it's going to be a one, one year in 2018, actually, there's going, to be some fight, there's going to be some fight back on white people wearing T-shirts that say Black Panther on it. Now, even a black, even a even a black, even a black transgendered woman on an airplane had to be escorted off the plane because the the airline pilot took offense to her hat that was not the Black Panther group, but the Black Panther with the with the Marvel logo on the side. But they didn't get that. All they saw was Black Panther. So you can imagine what's going to happen. Just like you used to see white people wearing public enemy t-shirts circa 1991. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering how that's going to play 2018. And I'm already seeing white folks with Black Panther paraphernalia on, by the way. But I'm just wondering how, that, mm-hmm. how is that going to play? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. I have no idea. It's going to be know, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going we're gonna to find out. I think something that we have to be cognizant of or would be good to be cognizant of is to prepare for that moment. The moment in which the Black Panther film takes a certain idea and plugs it into the global consciousness. Right. Are we going to be ready to exploit that moment? Or are we just going to when that moment comes. I think we have to be ready to exploit that moment with ideas, with product. So when we get the opportunity to see schedules of events that will have seismic shifts, prepare. Mm Mm-hmm. We got to call have, have, the, uh, have the body of work ready. Let's go to the to the lines real quick. Two one five. Welcome to the Grindhouse. We got about seven. Yeah, my name is John. I'm calling from Philadelphia. I was wondering if anybody has seen the new movie called Barry. It's currently on Netflix. Or the other one that came out is called Southside with You, and it's currently on demand. Like if you have like cable or like Verizon, you can see it on there. But what it shows is that Obama was really a person who was racially confused as a young man. And especially in a new film on Netflix called Barry, it shows Obama when he was like 19 or 20 years old and he was, and he was going to college. Uh, it shows that uh, he was really confused as far as his racial identity was concerned. He was reading mm-hmm. all types of uh, books, like in terms of like, uh, to try to understand his blackness, and yeah. But based upon and based and based upon that portrayal, it would seem that he really didn't have a strong personality, and someone would wonder how he would able to be able to uh, transform him, transform himself into a world leader, like in a very short period of time, 
based upon the racial confusion that was in his life at the time because he was dealing with all types of, he was dealing with, like, issues of abandonment from his father as well. And he dealt with those issues all the way up until the time he was married to Michelle. Yeah, but understand that uh, for 75 to 80% of human beings, you don't get a strong sense of self until after college. College is the time where you had one worldview. You're now experiencing a whole bunch of worldviews, a whole bunch of philosophies, a whole bunch of educations that you're not used to. All right, Southside with you, that, that was brilliant in that he never came to a girl like Michelle like that. He had yeah. to totally change his game. He had to learn more about who he was so that he'd be confident to land her. And as but, you could but, see, but, as them president and first lady, he, he got her, but she got him. That, that bond but, there but is also, strong. Right, and I think we also have to take into consideration that part of the reason he was able to be the president that he is is because of her. Right. You know, we, 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 sometimes there's a problem where you look at success of an individual and you don't take into consideration their partner and the strength and the reinforcement that that partner provides. So the, the, the impact of Barack Obama is the impact of Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that. Right. But, but the only thing I'm saying, most people would expect Obama to be a clone of like a Cory Booker where he was this very accomplished student athlete and he was at the top of his class and he was going to all these mm-hmm. prestigious universities. People would expect the first black president to be that way. But it shows in these two films that he was a person who was conflicted as a and young then, adult. Yeah. And, and he was dealing and, with these issues of like this abandonment from his father and the fact that his mother was like, well, she was there, but she was kind of in and out of the picture half of the time. So people wouldn't expect this man to actually develop into a world leader in like a very short period of time after he has dealt with all these personality issues. Let, let's That's remember. Right. And, and, you can, uh, uh, and you can say that for a number. You can say that for a variety of leaders who were white. You know, I mean, well, but, and and and, and the that's the thing. thing. It's like it's like there is, yeah. there are people that are dealing with developmental curves. There are people that are dealing with issues of identity, their own problems. Yeah, and it the would, strongest but, but, they, but, but, but they have to overcome them. That yeah. is what he did, and he didn't do it alone. So, I I totally understand what you're saying. Is that how do you go in a short period of time? from having those conflicts to seeming so self-assured. And the fact of the matter is, and the fact of the matter is, ultimately, we don't know how resolved he is as an individual. There may still be mm-hmm. some conflicts. Just because he's the president doesn't mean he solved all the problems inside his own, inside his own psychology or frame. We don't know. But the fact of the matter mm-hmm. is, no one who takes a position of leadership has it all figured out. No human being has it all figured out. Well, well one, one quick thing. One quick thing, and i gotta, I got to say this. 
because I've always been uh, in defense of uh, uh, President Barack Obama. They're, they're really, and this really has a lot to do with, with minorities in general, all our respective experiences, uh, what this show represents, blurred culture. I can kind of encapsulate in one, one way. There really is not a one-size-fits-all uh, archetype for blackness. Because this exactly. very conversation, this very conversation, this very blurdy nerds of color conversation, would be very would be an anathema to some some people. They wouldn't understand it, black or white. Just to be honest with you, talking about Batman, Black Panther, and Barack Obama in one conversation might might blow some people's heads. Just 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 that within itself. Uh, the very this has been discussed, but Barack Obama is no different in many respects from other black folks in the sense of uh, of of. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' dual consciousness. There's elements of mm-hmm. that. There's also the sense that uh, Barack Obama in Harvard studied under Derrick Bell, the late Derrick Bell, yeah. who developed the, the, the concept of, of critical race theory. So you have mm-hmm. so, so when people were questioning his blackness when he was uh, running for president, I thought it was absurd to begin with because if you, if you looked at the fact that he was in this, at uh, this, this famed black church for 20 years, you look at his wife. He studied, studied under Derrick Bell. Uh, you look at his phenotype, what he, what he looks like, and what he has to deal with walking around. You know, uh, when you look like that, life hits you very hard. It can mm-hmm. hit you at five. It can hit you at thirty-five. But this whole thing about there's one type of black person, or there's there's a there's a uh, a textbook for, for for being black. Well, that's absurd. Because right. I mean, would you you know? Uh, I'm pretty sure uh, William Drayton, a.k.a. Uh, Flavor Flav, has his experience of being black, just as Afro-nerd, just as Joe Illis, just as Barack Obama. They're different permutations. And this is, that's the problem with the, with the culture right now. The culture is trying to paint the default, what they perceive blackness to be, what they perceive an Asian person to be. They don't want you to, they don't want you to speak for yourself. That's the yeah. part of all this stuff. We, we need to be hearing yeah, it's, it's a multiplicity fiction. of sto- we need to be yes we need to be hearing a multiplicity of stories and that's why we that's why we're here in the present day I want to hear all of it I don't want to I don't want to just hear one black person's story or one Asian person's story I want to hear everybody's story that way you get full right. information that's what that's what's going that's on that's America yeah that's really America that's America yeah. and the strongest swords what I was trying to say before is they don't just appear. The strongest swords are forged over time. Barack Obama didn't just wake up and then, bam, I'm the president. No, he had to go through his own trials and tribulations to forge who he is, all right? Every black man out there, every black woman out there, you don't just be who you are. You don't have that strength already. It is forged from your learnings. It is forged from your interactions. It is forged from your successes, and it's forged from your failures. That's why you don't stop learning. That's why you don't be ignorant. Every day is a new opportunity to learn. Because something else, too, with, with Donald Trump, which makes this problematic, is that right now you see that when, he com- when it comes down to who he wants to meet for black leadership, it's Kanye West. You know, it's not, it's not Melody Hobson with, f- from Chicago, uh, George Lucas's wife, by the way. Um, it, it, it's, it's not uh, – Or oh, George Kim Lucas's Melody Hobson's husband. There it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
you know, they, they, you know, and, and and I love Jim Brown. I spoke about this on Wednesday. Jim Brown is is the first the first uh, wall of the superhero mystique for me. Jim Brown and Fred Williams, mm-hmm. Fred Williamson, uh, those cats were, were 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 the first line of actualized heroes. If you're going to be honest, that's something else that I, yeah. I, I I I would like to see at the Black Comic Festival at some point is tapping into all of all of our own IPs, the Foxy Browns and, and uh, yes. know, uh, 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 David Walker is is enamored with um, black exploitation as am I. Uh, hell, uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino has made a career off of black exploitation. He was raised on black exploitation and was has been able to transmogrify uh, the genre into his own. So he learned from black folks in essence. But, but we need to be tapping into to that as well as the comic book stuff. We need to be tapping into some of this black exploitation stuff, even for black comic for the black comic festival. There's a lot of heroes out there. Shaft and all of that. Shout out to David Walker. Um, gentlemen, we got about seven minutes remaining. Uh, again, I really appreciate you came through. I was only expecting you two for a few moments, but we started getting into. I don't mind telling you, I'm blown away that John was here for the whole time. No, because this man is always doing four things at once. This happened to me last time, too. I was like, oh, I'm going to be here for a few. I'm like, oh, my God, I love this. No, um, I actually packed like six bags, six boxes of, of books. Most of the time. <laughs> nice. <See>, multitasking. <laughs> nice. The only way to get stuff done, man, I got to move this, this upcoming week. You know, I'm going to uh, move to Cambridge for Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. So, so gentlemen, we we got a few more minutes remaining. So let's let's close this out. So so what what do we what do we need to do going forward? To what do we need to do going forward, and what do you want to see, especially with the the future of of uh, your work, Joe and John, uh, with the Black Comic Festival? Um, you know, listen, we Afropunk is a monster. It didn't start out that way. So, what are your thoughts about just what we need to be doing, and where do you see yourselves? five or ten years with, with blurred culture, nerds of color, how do you think it's going to play itself out? Hmm. All right, John, I, took the, the, I, took, I took the last one first. That is one to you. Oh, is it my turn? Oh, man, yes, you okay, are. So, um, I do see, that, I, I think that, that this is going to be normalized. I think that this is going to become the way that we do things. I mean, I think this notion of like Afrofuturism, Afrofuturism is talking about the now, Right. Black speculation, black speculation and black speculative culture is talking about the issues that we're dealing with now, but we're just using storytelling to do it. You mentioned Derek Bell earlier, right? One of, one of the godfathers of critical race theory. How did he teach critical race theory? He used speculative stories. He wrote Space Traders. He wrote, like, Faces at the Bottom of the Web. He, he, uh, he, he wrote, he, he wrote uh, you know, black speculative culture to talk about how uh, race could be uh, articulated in the future. He used science fiction to teach the law. That's, you know, so basically we've always used this type of culture to actually, you know, fight against oppression, to explain ourselves as far as how we function as, as people in, in this country. Um, and I think that that's, that's going to become uh, normalized. I think that in the next five or ten years, I want to have, you know, of course, more workout. Uh, one, of, one of the things that I've been doing for most of my career is, is a facilitator, either through like curation or, you know, creating uh, volumes of things or creating uh, books like the one that, uh, that Joe just talked about uh, at the um, 
you know, at the museum, the, the, the Black of the Ink piece, where, you know, we're analyzing black culture, right? But I want to create more work. So, for instance, this, uh, this, this Harvard Fellowship is, is about creating a new storytelling space, and that's what I'm going to be doing there. It's going to be there working on uh, this new area that I, that I created called, called Cybertrap. You know, it's a creation of, like, cyberpunk and, like, you know, clunked out, like, uh, trap culture, you know, dystopian. Wow. But also, but also as, as what uh, Geno Diaz would call, uh, what we'll call um, critical dystopia, right, like a critical dystopia. They're looking at, like, what's happening now, um, but using storytelling to do it, right? So I think that a lot of uh, the work that I, I plan to do and that I continue to push is to create networks with each other, to support each other, to be critical of each other, but also to support each other. And I want to see more of that cooperative spirit, you know, that we've seen uh, carry yeah. us through some hard times in the past. You know, um, I have some, I have some things like one thing, and, and I'm going to go ahead and put this out here because it's something I've been, I've been thinking about for a while. Is I want to do some kind of black black comic summit, you know, where the the, the, the movers and shakers, the people who are creating the work, get together and not just vend, but or maybe not even vend, but to sit down and talk about. What are the best options for us? How do we support each other? What are the new things we're working on? How can we collaborate with each other? Because I think that's the only way we're going to actually push through as an independent space. Because, again, the mainstream isn't clocking for us unless they are forced to, right? So uh, that, that's, that's what I think that we need to do. And that's, that's the kind of work that I'm going to dedicate myself to. I'm, I just wrote a new class for um, I think three of my new classes for for, U, for UCR. By the way, I've, I've actually taken a job at University of California Riverside, so I'll be moving out there in May. So um, oh, okay. I'll be teaching. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm moving from the East Coast to the to the West Coast. And, wow. Um, no yeah, more so Buffalo, I'll, I'll huh? Teaching, <laughs> no more Buffalo anymore. My wife hates Buffalo, so that's why we're back on the market. So as Joe <laughs> was talking about, your your partner helps uh, <laughs> mold your space, right? That's um, right. So yeah, I'll, I'll, but I'll be teaching for the first time. I won't be teaching art. I'll be teaching straight classes about analysis of media. I'll be in a media and cultural studies program where I'll be teaching courses around comics, uh, black images, and horror, because I'm a huge horror fanatic, by the way, uh, science fiction and, and, and race, and also this new area of study that I'm kind of trying to create called, the, called uh, critical race design studies, because I think about, like, you know, race as a designed object, that kind of thing, and also extrapolations around that. So th- that's that's where my head is right now. There's a lot of things I can say about it, but you know, we're we're we're, we're closing down. So, wow, you know, that's I'm in awe, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, where do I see the blurred culture ten years from now? Is that it's going to? It's just going to keep growing. This is not something that is going to become reduced. It's not something that's going to be put back into a box or be hidden under secret identities anymore. Nope. It's only going to grow further, and what I think is going to happen is more of the bridges between the different um, ethnic nerd groups. So Mm -hmm. when you see unified efforts between the nerds of color and black girl nerds. You know, right. that's what I think is going to happen. As our houses become point. stronger, we're going to start creating more bridges between the houses, and then what you're going to have is a community of houses. Mm-hmm. So I see that happening. Absolutely. In terms of where I would want to be in the next 10 years, 
I don't know. Ten years is a far way away. I That's would have to say time. that in yeah. terms of <laughs> in terms of Catalyst Prime, I would think by ten years from now, Catalyst Prime is going to be in someone else's hands, and it's going to give me joy to know that something that I helped nurture into being lives on, um, that ideas live on, that intellectual properties live on. Um, and if Dwayne McDuffie, God rest his soul, had been alive today, he wow. would have seen the the mm, the effects of his efforts. And so if I can live to see the effects of my efforts, then I will be quite blessed. On that note, gentlemen, we're in the podcast format. We're no longer live, but I must say that I, I'm very uh, happy that you gentlemen came through. It was very uh, enlightening. Um, I got to say this also, just quickly, um, just as an aside. As much as I might think that Scarlett Johansson is attractive, I've, I, I've actually ha- I actually have a little bit of anger when I look at her 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 profile as um, the major. And I mention this. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's not, it, it's beginning it's beginning to have a fire in me that I want to see truth. This discussion, and when I look at her face, I'm like. I don't. I, I, this is this is absurd. I just I just want everyone else to have that same feeling that enough is enough, and we start to see all of us have our due, and all of us start to get our products disseminated, and we start to see uh, just just what I saw this morning when I saw uh, Rogue One, where that is normalized. I hope, mm-hmm. I really hope that everything becomes normalized, where this is no big deal, and we just start to actually get in get into this culture. And everyone is enjoying mm-hmm. it, and it's, no one's in shock that you know there's such a thing as a black Santa Claus. You know, right. <laughs> that that was something I failed to mention. That I saw black Santa Clauses when I was a kid. Now all of a sudden, it's controversial. And when you look, when I looked up, uh, if anyone were to look up Saint Nicholas, the historical figure, he looks like Grady. <laughs> Saint Nicholas right. looks like Whitman Mayo. I'm just saying. I'm just. Well, saying. <laughs> I mean, well, look. You mean it's. We just have to keep, we have to keep, you know, take the anger and turn it into action, right? We have to figure out how to convert emotion into action, right? Plain and simple, because emotion in and of itself is not going to get us anywhere if it's the fuel for action. And I'm talking about strategic action. I'm talking about where you don't just think about, what you're going to accomplish in a year. What do you want to accomplish in 10 years? What's the roadmap for getting there? Who are the people that I have to talk to? This morning, I was having breakfast with some business people getting some advice. Quite frankly, that's what I was doing this morning. I was getting advice because this thing that I'm doing, it can't fail. Because if it fails then it's the symbol that other people can look at and say, see what happens when you do that. Exactly. Right? So, honestly, there's a bunch of TV shows out right now, people talking about, you know, they saw that DC Universe four-part crossover across all the shows. I ain't got time for that shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't got time to watch the Dominators cross over all that stuff. Like, there is work to be done. Yeah, I haven't seen that. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, that's my thing. It's like, there's work to be done, 
do the work, and I think part of what we're missing in terms of in terms of improving our formidability is emulating structures that succeed, right? Mm-hmm. So don't be afraid to look at white power structures and see what we can learn from them and adopt it to our own operations. You know, understand what generational wealth is. Understand how we were sabotaged by it. And so when we think about these actions that we're thinking about, they have to be actions with long-term benefits. And we just have to be supremely strategic. You know? I appreciate what you're saying. And I've been saying on the show, I promote that on the show, that we need to start really recirculating those dollars multiple times, supporting each other, supporting products. Of, I mean, you know, support what you want to support. But at, at the end of the day, if any of this stuff is supposed to work out on our behalf, we have to really promote the idea of, of, of these black comic book fans, fans of color, supporting products that look like them, making that yep. normal. You know, always going to the Spider Man. I love Spider Man too, but always going to mm-hmm. the Spider Man table when they're up, when they're these these other IPs of color. I mean, listen. I support. I find myself buying all kinds of books. I'm obsessed with it. Buying books by, by all types of ethnicities. I'm like, it's on my head now. I think we need to stop making that a thing instead of just normalizing. Always going to the going to the Star Wars table. I mean, it's fine. But that can't be the so. It can't be odd that you also patronize the 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 representations that look like you. That has that has to be more normal, and we have to be more politicized at these conventions uh, and and even online. That you know, okay, enough with Rogue One. I mean, Rogue One represents one thing, but there's something else going on on the other side as well. That's what I want to see more more normal. We need to get those numbers up that jo- that uh, John was referencing. We need to see more clicks on black-owned IPs. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, and, 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 and by doing that, it's, it's business and strategy. It's pimping the system. And something that I didn't say on the show, but I think this is also crucial, is we have to prove that we can tell stories that are not just our stories. That's yeah. We have to, you know, we have to do what, what Damien did. Damien worked with you, and when mm-hmm. the book comes out, he will prove that he can be part of a team that can help this story. We have to do that, too, so they, so the system does not have the excuse to segregate us only to our stories. Right. Because, yeah, you're talking about revolutionary action the way that we're going to combat this has to be on multiple levels. I think you have to have the, the infiltrators, the diplomats, and the revolutionaries. I think it's multi-tier. And everyone has to decide, okay, which of those three am I going to be? Now, I consider myself a diplomat that is working my way to being an infiltrator. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not the Angela Davis. I'm not the Malcolm X. I know that, but that's not the role that I am meant to play. I know the role that I'm meant to play, and that's the one I'm playing. Right. Right? Everyone has to pick which which tier are you going to operate on, 
and then do the work. And work on it, exactly. Yeah, Man, they left you, me you, out of that. Things. There's no anarchist. Yeah. You forgot anarchy. That's where I come in. I always said, I'm not the good guy in this piece. I'm the supervillain. Well, that would be, I think that would put you in the revolutionary then. I think anarchists are revolutionary. And that's, that's another DCIP, by the way. That's another DCIP. Knock it off. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> gentlemen, your, gentlemen, but, gentlemen, we got to close shop. It's been an absolute pleasure. We have to do this again. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person, live and direct, next month. So uh, I cannot wait. Um, we're going to close out some more holiday music, and then we'll get back to normal with our Afropunk. Uh, we'll keep in touch behind the scenes. I look forward to next month. Joe, keep doing what you're all doing. Right. Claire's all, Claire's always keep keep your head up. Um, full support for everybody. This is uh, Binky Griptite, Stone Soul Christmas. It's been a pleasure, gentlemen. See you next all month. All right, same here. And John, safe travel. Thanks, bro. And uh, congratulations. All right. Oh, thanks very much. We'll be talking. Don't you know it's Christmas?